Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. Hi, this is Steve. Movies are supposed to take you on a journey. Maybe it's a journey into fear or into love, political intrigue or magical fantasy. But the truly great filmmakers can take us on journeys to places we never thought we'd go. Maybe even into the dark places of their souls. Maybe into our own. Apocalypse Now is just such a movie, and the story behind Apocalypse Now is as fascinating as the film itself. To prepare for this one, John and I studied the film, the director's cut, which Coppola calls Apocalypse Now Redux, and the amazing documentary Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse. This is one of the most fascinating movies we've ever talked about on The Cinephiles, and we highly recommend checking it out if you haven't seen it. It is available for rental on iTunes and YouTube, and there is an excellent special edition Blu-ray that contains both versions of the film with commentary tracks as well as the documentary. And if Apocalypse Now isn't enough, here's a little glimpse at what's coming up in December on The Cinephiles. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Boy, boy, crazy boy. Get cool, boy. Got a rocket in your pocket. Keep coolie cool, boy. Guacamole. Chicken or stir? Do I look like I give a damn? Mary, I got him here from the 
airport just as quick as I could. The fool flew all the way up here in a blizzard. Harry, now about your Banford in New York. Oh, I left right in the middle of it. As soon as I got Mary's telegram. Good idea, Ernie. A toast. <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. <laughs> So, that's Apocalypse Now this Friday and a whole bunch of great movies to talk about in December. We'll see you then. Pick up Colonel Kurtz's path at New Mung Ba. Follow it. Learn what you can along the way. When you find the Colonel infiltrate his team by <clears throat> whatever means available and terminate the Colonel's command. Terminate the Colonel. He's out there operating without any decent restraint, totally beyond the pale of any acceptable human conduct. And he is still in the field commanding troops. Terminate with extreme prejudice. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on movies today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hey, everybody. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover actor, actor, and host of numerous podcasts and shows here in Los Angeles. And uh, today we're mo- doing a movie that is big. Yeah. And, and even even approaching and, and researching for this film, I've gone, man, this is a... This is a lot to deal with. You've gone on your own journey. I have. I have. The darkness. And, and to a point where I wanted to get out. I, yeah. I was I was two nights ago, I was up. It's like I should watch more bonus features, interviews, right. behind the scenes. And I couldn't do it. I wow. had to stop. Yeah. Because this movie's hard. And the movie is 1979 Apocalypse Now. Yeah. What a great film from Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. I, I, I might think after doing it big that yeah. this is his best. You can certainly make a case. I, 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 I like, I'd rather watch The Godfather. Sure. It but, takes less out of you. Yeah. And I think this is a real interesting movie to talk about because on the show, we always talk about the making of the film mm-hmm. and the ideas of the film. And this is one where they're really, they're both really big. Yeah. The, the, this film, if we just talked about this film thematically, about what it has to say, about its drama, the narrative, the story. It, it, we could do a whole show. And yeah. if we just talked about the techniques, the making of the film, the history of the film, how it happened, the actors, how they got what they got, we could do a whole show. Right. Um, so how'd you first come to Apocalypse Now? Well, we're going to try to do all that in this show. Well, we're going to try to do it. We're going <laughs> to try. <one> show. <laughs> um, uh, I came to Apocalypse Now, I think, um, in the 80s at some point, but really became aware of it in the early 90s and at some film festival I went to see it. Oh, at. really? Yeah, yeah. It was a film festival. Like, I used to, back in the 90s and late 80s, I became a very big addict at going to film festivals around the area in Virginia, D.C., what have you. I would drive to them. I'd go to New York for a day and watch film fest to go to a film festival and i remember seeing apocalypse now for the first time at the uptown in dc which is the 70 millimeter theater down in dc and uh you know i'd be i was becoming a massive fan of films and that was one that they had said you have to watch 
like uh, in the right theater with the right sound, the right picture, all that jazz. And I had seen it on TV, I think, a couple of times, maybe by that point. But I hadn't really consumed the film. And going to see it at the Uptown was the first time that I consumed the film. You know what? I don't think... I've ever seen it in a theater. Wow, what? Yeah. Oh, my Lord. It's just occurring to me right now. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it at least five to six times in a theater. At least. Yeah, I don't think I have. Wow. Uh, So my first time seeing it, I was in high school. Okay. And I, you know, rented it on VHS because just like you, I was starting to get that interest in film and I'd heard about it. Yeah. Knew it was something that I was supposed to watch. And I think I watched it by myself. And I remember at the end of that movie... Not knowing how to feel, yeah. you know, be feeling or, or, or more accurately, I was feeling a whole bunch of stuff mm-hmm. and I didn't know how to reckon with it. And it was one of those movies I kept coming back to and, and kept trying to figure out how do I feel about this film? Yeah. I knew it was something profound, but mm-hmm. I couldn't quite figure it out. And yeah. then and what's interesting, too, is, you know, watching it more and more, you start to dig in deeper to it. And then particularly when Hearts of Darkness comes out. So Hearts of Darkness is the documentary uh, made by uh, Coppola's wife about the making of this film. And it's sort of like the ultimate, you know, DVD bonus feature. Mm -hmm. Like it's taking that form of this is the behind the scenes movie and turning it into an art form. Mm -hmm. And it is a remarkable documentary. And then you watch that and then you watch the film and then... Uh, Redux comes out, which is his version of a director's cut, and and watch that, and then go back and watch the original, and yeah. and and slowly but surely over time, my feelings about the film start to solidify. Mm-hmm. Like to me, this was not one where I went, I saw it and I went, oh yeah, got it. You shouldn't get it in high school. Like yeah. you shouldn't. You should yeah. understand that these are deeper themes, deeper meanings, and you, but you're not ready. You're not adult enough or old enough, re- and and really experienced enough in life to get it, to really get it. And that's that's why the that's why these things are masterpieces. The ones that are masterpieces are masterpieces for a reason. And I think this film is definitely a masterpiece because you can revisit it every decade of your life and completely come away right. with a deeper understanding of the film. And as you get older, you might start to find yourself as you get really older identifying with Kurtz more than Willard. Yeah, that's interesting because of. The because of the journey of your life, whatever happens in your life, you know? Yeah. And, and this film, uh, you know, it's like, what what does it mean to get it? Yeah. You know, there, I don't think there's any, I think you feel things and sure. you feel new things the next time right. and you learn things, but do you ever, you know, just like any, because in a way, uh, this film is very different from, there are a lot of great war films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, yes. And, and this film is not that. <laughs> this is different. You know, it's ironic is that it, it is my top, war film but for so many other reasons right right because there are no real battles in the whole film it's it's well, an there's exploration a big, there's a big helicopter attack but, but, right but, but it's like, not but it, there's no defense really they're no. just it's a it's a killing it's a mauling that well that and attack. it's not a, it's you know it's not a war film in the way that Patton is a war yeah film. right it's exactly. not a it's not a war film in way you know the longest day yeah or, or you know it's, battle of the bulge those battle of the bulge yeah, it's yeah. not or, or sergeant york or any sure, of those sure. it's not like that those are movies that are say look at war yeah and this is a movie that's an exploration into the human condition yeah. into the soul and this film is m- more closer to poetry than narrative absolutely you know i mean it has a narrative mm-hmm. um so let's go back let's talk a little bit about the history of the film sure so first of all uh for those of you who don't know it's based on the book heart of darkness by joseph conrad which is a book about a british man selling up a river in africa who's part of a company to find this company man who has quote unquote gone native mm-hmm. Uh, and Orson Welles originally wanted to make this as his first film when he and he ended up not doing this, not doing Heart of Darkness, and went to make Citizen Kane. Right. And then we come to the late '60s, early '70s, and John Milius, who is a great screenwriter and one of the 
fascinating, strange characters in Hollywood. Absolutely. And if you haven't seen the documentary on him, you have to see that documentary. I think it's yeah. been on Netflix. And if it's yeah. not on Netflix, it's called Milius. It. Yeah, it's, it's called Milius. It's, called, it's called so great. And this is a, you know, like people have this image of Hollywood as this left wing, super liberal, hippy dippy place. Right. That ain't Milius. No. Milius is a gun toting, hard drinking, super macho yeah. guy. Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, went on to, he directed Conan the Barbarian and Red Dawn, and there's other movies I'm sure you probably yeah. know better than me. Yeah. Uh, and, and and a great screenwriter, and he writes this script, Apocalypse Now, based on he wasn't a veteran, but conversations he had mm-hmm. with his buddies coming back from Vietnam, and the guy he's gonna who's gonna direct it is his buddy from USC Film School, George Lucas. Oh wow! Yeah, I did not know Lucas was. Uh, oh wow! Okay, yeah. so Lucas. Oh, that's a whole other film, right? Well, and wait till you hear how they were gonna direct it. Mm. So so this is so so all these guys are <laughs> hanging out together, yeah. and Coppola is sort of the papa of all this group of young filmmakers coming out of film school in yeah. the 60s, early 70s. Coppola's going to form his company called American Zotrope, which um, he's the first person to really succeed. And his idea is Hollywood is poison. Let's go create our own film studio yeah. up in the San Francisco Bay Area for artists to go make their art films. Yeah. And sadly, Zotrope never really happens in the way that Coppola wants it to. Right. Um, but one of the first films they're going to do is Apocalypse Now, directed by George Lucas, written by John Milius. And they were going to shoot it ultra low budget, 16 millimeter in Vietnam during the war. Wow. That's their plan. They didn't do that. What could go wrong? Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and you picture, you know, particularly at that time, timid, quiet, yeah. nerdy sort of George Lucas. And you go, you're going to go into the jungle in an active war yeah. and go shoot this film? And you think, eh, maybe that was a little more Millie's idea. <laughs> then that sounds a lot more like him. Uh, that doesn't so, so it doesn't happen. Like it doesn't happen, <laughs> yeah, obviously. Yeah. Lucas goes off to do uh, THX 138, goes off to do American Graffiti. Millie's goes off to do other things. Yeah. Coppola has all the sex, su- success with The Godfather and conversation. And he goes, well, maybe I'm going to make... Apocalypse Now as, as the first big film for American Zoetrope. Right. And instead of being the 16 millimeter low budget thing, he goes, I'm going to do the opposite. Is I'm going to make a big sweeping war epic yeah. and we're going to make tons of money and that's what's going to fund Zoetrope. Uh, so he goes off to the jungle. He goes to the Philippines where the uh, really fairly terrible dictator, Fernando Marcos, is mm-hmm. in charge. And he makes a great deal with Marcos who says, because by the way, the American military said, we don't want anything to do with this. Right. Well, because yeah. it's Vietnam. Well, it's they, not just Vietnam. It's, it's a really negative portrayal of the well, military. Th- and that's Vietnam. what I mean. Yeah. I mean, it's all of that exploration because of the reaction people had to the military in Vietnam. Yeah. So they only wanted to do like Green Berets. Was, they had right. all uh, yeah, the, sure. they had all the, uh, 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 cooperation of the American government, but this, no, not so much. Yeah. So he goes to Marcos and Marcos <laughs> says, sure, you can use the entire Philippine military, which are all because they're funded by the American military. They're all American, American helicopters, American weapons, yeah. you know, American equipment. So it looks a lot like the American military. Yeah. Um, and we should say not that we have to go into Viet- the Vietnam War. That's not the point of this. Right. That the Vietnam War is a fundamentally different war than anything that America had dealt with before. Absolutely. Yeah. Or since. Or yeah. I would say or since because well, of I the location. It uh, it predicts where war is going to go. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. that it is the first of the modern wars. Okay. Sadly, 
um, and I don't want to get into the politics sure. of it, but we can certainly say that this, unlike World War II, this is a war that's not popular on the home front. Right. This is a war that's on television that the American people have extremely complicated reactions to. Mm-hmm. And you have veterans coming home for this war who have uh, extremely difficult times ahead of them. Yes. You know, which is true, of course, from all wars, but sure. Vietnam was particularly public. Um, and so they wanted to make a film that goes at this war. And Coppola shows up. And Coppola's way of making films, which we're going to talk about in more detail, is he's going to figure it out as he goes along. Yeah. You know, and figuring out and Coppola's goal, his whole goal, if you, if you hear interviews with him, he wanted to make personal little independent films. Yeah. Like the conversation is probably the closest to the kind of film that he really wanted to make. Mm-hmm. He didn't really want to make The Godfather. Yeah. And now he's on this huge film and you're on a huge film where you're going to figure it out as you go along. You're going to get into a lot of trouble. Well, this is the irony of Coppola, isn't it? Because irony, Coppola is such a huge figure, such a, oh, yeah. a, a, a massive in size, but also massive in ego, massive in belief, massive in thoughts, massive in, massive in opinion. He's just an entity, an energy that's very large. So the idea that he thought he would make these quiet little films, right. but even the conversation being a quiet little film is about a larger thing, oh, yeah. about a bigger... Uh, uh, idea it's like it it's really prescient about the nsa about the patriot act about all these things sure. it's so fantastic it's the 1970 early 1970s but still talking about this and that's what is i think find ironic about coppola thinking he could do something small he's not built to do anything small it's just not in his wheelhouse well and he's he's extreme in his vision of yes. what he's trying to do of course so so when he comes up with an idea he's not going to do that idea halfway right and conversation's a perfect example the detail mm-hmm. of that film and that's a film we're going to talk about down the line i actually watched it again the other night because I, oh, it's fantastic, yeah. Yeah, it's a great film with great performance from mm-hmm. Gene Hackman. And, yeah. I mean, that. so so stay tuned at some point on the cinephile. <laughs> we'll get to the conversation. Right. The, today is not the conversation. <laughs> well, we're having um, a conversation. <laughs> have, yeah. Fair enough. Um, and we are, in fact, recording it. So yes, there's we some are. similarities. Um, uh, and so, uh, did you know, I just found this out. Do you know? So, so most people or many people know that he that Harvey Keitel was originally cast yes. to play uh, the Martin Sheen role, yes. and was then fired, which I'm going to talk about in a sec. Mm-hmm. What I didn't know was that Coppola always wanted Martin Sheen. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't either until oh, okay. I just was on uh, an interview I saw with mm. Coppola and Martin Sheen. Is that he approached Martin Sheen, said, "I want you to do this movie," and Martin Sheen had a gig in Rome, uh-huh. couldn't do it. Right. So that's when they go, oh, well, you know, the casting director says, what about Keitel? Coppola loves Keitel. Right. Keitel's a great actor. They bring Keitel. They shoot weeks with him mm-hmm. on a fairly big budget movie. And as Coppola's watching the dailies, he's going, this isn't right. Right. Yeah. He's and, too, he's too, he's not passive enough. That's exactly He's too it. active as an actor. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is one of the things, and we, I know we've said this before, is that acting is not just a binary you're a good actor or not a good actor right it's are you right, the right actor yeah and Keitel's not the right actor mm-hmm. you know because he's active he's gonna always be doing stuff well and it's it's, it's it mirrors what happens with Eric Stoltz and, and Michael Perfect. J. Fox and Back to the Future because Eric Stoltz is more of a meditative actor right he's more ruminating about what is happening about this idea of going back to try to save his parents or try to save their marriage and change his life and, and Michael J. Fox is the easier vehicle to do that with because he's not judgmental about what's happening. Right. He's experiencing it just as you're experiencing it as the audience. And it's so, not yeah. that Eric Stoltz isn't a great actor. Absolutely not. Right. Exactly. And there are other roles where you couldn't possibly put Michael J. Fox in. Exactly. And Eric Stoltz knocks it out of the park. Right. Mastic. And the same is true with Keitel. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Martin Sheen. Yeah. So Keitel's there and then he has to do this horrible thing, which is firing your lead actor, which is horrible emotionally. Yeah. And it's horrible logistically because you just blew hundreds of thousands of dollars. On two weeks of shooting, right? Yeah. Was it two weeks? Two, two or three weeks. I yeah. Think. 
And, and two or three weeks when you have hundreds of people, yeah. even although he's using uh, Filipino uh, labor, which you can tell in this movie, they made a lot out of some very cheap labor. <laughs> yeah, in ways sure. that how we feel about this ethically or other things maybe we yeah. can talk about with this film. Sure. Brings Martin Sheen in. And then the, the, what keeps happening is Coppola keeps going off script. You know, Coppola has a dream, he has a thought, he has an idea, mm -hmm. and he starts shooting things. And he knows fairly early on that the ending that Milius wrote, and there's some things in it that are pure Milius, no yeah. question. Like the Absolutely. Kill, yeah, Robert Duvall, the Kilgore scene, that's yeah. Milius. Mm -hmm. That's that macho, yeah. you know, crazy thing. But the ending was a huge battle. That's the ending in the original script between the North Vietnamese and uh, Willard and Kurtz and all this fighting and. Coppola knew really early that's not the ending of the movie. Right. But he didn't know what the ending of the movie was. He didn't know what the ending of the movie was until, you know, a year later, because they shot this movie for a long time. Yeah. You know, 14 months, I think, when Brando shows up and they had to do improv. Yeah. You know, so this is, so what he kept doing was he kept stalling because he didn't know what the end of the movie was. So he keeps. Well, let's go shoot this and let's go shoot this. Yeah. Where does he go with this, right? Where is he going to take it? And this is so interesting because he wants to have this whole idea of, of learning as you go along or like throwing out the script or messing around with it. And of course, that's going to, it's it's very much like David Milch. A lot of people complain about David Milch in TV, that in people who worked on NYPD Blue, people who worked on Deadwood, like those last couple of seasons of those shows that Milch was on those seasons, it was very tough for the actors because he right. was coming up with script the day of and they were having to memorize it just offset and then come back on set and do it. And a lot of actors thrive in that. A lot of actors don't thrive in that because they feel super sensitive about the performance they're giving because they haven't had enough time to prepare. This is all this kind of thing. So, yeah. so let's take that and we'll magnify yeah. it like a hundred times because not only are the actors having to learn new things and improvise new things, yeah. but you have helicopters and explosions. Exactly. And they're right. being made up on the spot and going. Right. And so there's tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars being spent. And it's funny, if you're a novelist or a painter and you're following the emotion of the art, yeah. great. You're alone. Yeah. When you're a filmmaker, you have hundreds of people and extremely complicated logistics and safety yeah. and all this. You know, I should say, like, the, the, I should actually give you the, uh, the quote uh, from Coppola, mm -hmm. um, which begins uh, Hearts of Darkness, which I highly recommend yeah. uh, you watch. He's at a press conference. I think it, it might be at Cannes or somewhere where the film is screening. And this is what Coppola said about the movie. My, my film is not a movie. My film is not uh, about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. It's what it was really like. It was crazy. And the way we made it was very much like the way the Americans were in Vietnam. We were in the jungle. There were too many of us. We had access to too many, uh, too much money. Too much equipment. And little by little, we went insane. Yeah, that's right. And then he says that, and this is a perfect metaphor for the Vietnam War itself. Yeah. You know, is that his movie parallels the war in, in this strange way of just, he, he went insane. Well, there's no greater, to me, there's no greater Vietnam War film. No greater. It, it completely encapsulates 
the Vietnam War. The idea, because you have the generals and the, and the lieutenants and the officers in the camp telling Martin Sheen what he needs to do. You have Martin Sheen as the character who is completely lost in the war himself and can no longer function on the other side of war. He cannot function in civilized society anymore. He feels that he, this war is the only place that he's connected to anymore. Then they send him on this mission. You have this the young kid, Lawrence Fishburne. You have these characters on the boat. They all represent archetypes of people you see in the military. I served eight years. So for me in the army, and I know, I know those archetypes on that boat. I know those people. I serve with those people. Right. And then when he gets to where he gets to uh, with Kurtz, it's the exploration of what a lifer does when a lifer has penetrated the fallacy of this entire idea of war and the military in a war and the idea of what you can what you're allowed to do in war, what you're not allowed to do in peacetime, simply because you've used the word the phrase. It's a war. I can kill now without uh, without uh, caution or without without real limits. Because it's a war. And those are the things that I really enjoy about the film and why Vietnam is such a complex and difficult war to, to uh, encapsulate quickly or encapsulate easily. You know? Yeah, and it's, it's funny because I've read a lot. There are a lot of Vietnam veterans who really hate this movie. Of course they do. Um, and, and say this is not a depiction of the war <laughs> that they were in. And, and, and what's, but and here's the interesting thing, too. So I, uh, I teach this film in class. And in particular, the opening montage, which we're going to talk about in mm -hmm. more detail, because I think the opening montage is a remarkable piece of film. Yes. And uh, I have a lot of veterans in my class who are in uh, film school, part of the VA bill. Yeah. And some of them who I know have dealt with issues of PTSD. Right. And uh, I always warn them before seeing this scene, having gone through this a bunch, because this is a, a really powerful scene for veterans to watch. Right. And in talking to them, and I've talked to some of them privately after, and they say, that's it. That it captures something about PTSD, about the and that term mm -hmm. post-traumatic uh, stress uh, disorder, disorder yeah. uh, that didn't exist. Um, no, it was it was always under different names yeah, depending was, on the we, decade. Yeah, it was, it was shell shock. Yeah, it was so, yeah. battle fatigue. Right. It was you know these other terms. The term didn't exist. But the and, and what's really interesting about it is none of the main people working on this movie served in the military. Yeah, Martin Sheen didn't. Coppola didn't. Walter Murch, the editor, didn't. Right. The uh, Milius, the screenwriter, didn't. Right. Harvey Keitel was a Marine. Yeah. Uh, and so one of the things Martin Sheen felt when he took the gig is like, how can you give it to me who knows nothing yeah. about this stuff? Uh, when Harvey Keitel was a Marine, he, was a, he really served. Right. Um, uh, Martin Sheen, by the way, he didn't even know how to swim. <laughs> when he got the gig he, he got the gig he's like oh shit i gotta go learn how to swim i'm in a boat yeah. in the river so they they continue making the movie and they continue going off on these journeys and uh, a typhoon two typhoons come yeah uh destroy all the sets and coppola's attitude has always been which you see in the godfather and other mm -hmm. films whatever's happening let's go filming it because he wants things to be real Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to be on a set. He doesn't want people to, you know, like he would never do things, you know, George Lucas style in front of green screens when right. everything's CG. That's, he wants to be in the real stuff. And they're out shooting in the typhoon. And there's a certain point where they go, where even Coppola goes, oh, we shouldn't be here. <laughs> We're going to die. Um, and they do actually stop. Wow. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and, and I want to just say on the filmmaking level, and I really think, by the way, if, so if you're a lover of film, but particularly if you're an aspiring filmmaker, mm. 
this is a movie you got to study. Yeah. And you got to you got to watch it and you got to watch the commentary track, and you got to watch Hearts of Darkness and you got to watch Redux and you got to watch it 6 months later right. and maybe watch it with the sound off and you got to cuz cuz there's so much about filmmaking here. Maybe even watch it after you've directed your first film. Oh yeah. Or even before you've directed your first film because so like the commentary track and also the, the documentary on this which is fantastic which you mentioned explores the excesses of a filmmaker who right. doesn't have a plan or who is improving as he goes along and the perils and also the the incredible results that come out of could come out of something like that. Well, and, and, it's, and but I do want to say that if I'm teaching my class, everything they're doing is wrong. Yeah. In terms of yes, how I teach my of class. Course, of because course. my class is you got to plan, you got to have shot list. Yeah. You got to be organized. You got to know what you're trying to accomplish. We all work with limited budgets. We have limited time. We have limited resources. Right. And the only way to make a film is to, and of course, it's not the only way to make a right. film, but is to not do what Coppola does. Right. And yet Coppola makes a great film. Yes. I mean, the odds are doing what he's doing, that ain't going to work. Well, that's the thing. And you discover that because he he mortgaged his fa- his house, his right. vineyard, like all the stuff that he mortgaged to be able to, serve, to, to fund this film. It was he banked his entire career on this film. And that's the insanity of a, of a filmmaker like Coppola. Like, I don't understand that kind of hubris, nor do, I un- nor, nor do I understand that kind of excess to be able to risk everything on something like this that could completely fall apart and ruin you and your family to the point where you have to like take a job at Walmart or something yeah. or become a PA on a set just to be able to get an apartment and that is madness to me and that's why he's the perfect person for this film why Milius is the perfect person for this film and why the film turns out the way it does because it is from ironically it is from all the the nuttiness and craziness and completely violating every filmmaking law there is that's what even that's what makes it even more of an amazing accomplishment in my mind yeah I mean as a person who mortgages his house to make a film yeah <laughs> Uh, I don't understand that. I didn't do it the way Coppola did it. Right. Like, I didn't I didn't mortgage everything. Right. Exactly. And I stayed on budget. Yeah. I mean, it was the opposite. I was like, this is my money. Mm-hmm. I have to be extremely efficient. I have to know exactly what I'm doing. Right. I, I'd seen Hearts of Darkness. Yeah. Um, oh, and real quick, we should say this right now, Steve. The time that this film was made was a time when there was a revolution in Hollywood in the 70s about filmmaking. Where absolutely. It was about the filmmaker. It was not about the studio. And uh, studios were more willing to give money to these filmmakers to, to pursue their vision because they were trying to figure out where they could make their money and it was the old school system from the 50s 60s and 40s wasn't working anymore coppola took advantage of this and a lot of people in the 70s took advantage of this and made their made some masterpieces but also paid the price for it later well that's that's a great point and and if you look at you know so there's the collapse of the studio system yeah and then these young filmmakers come in and they're the artists and so the studio not knowing what to do goes okay i guess we're going to give you your head yeah and you're going to go do this and then you get to apocalypse now and Heaven's Gate and yeah. some other ones and that's the end that's the end yeah Apocalypse mm-hmm. Now is where the studio because at the moment Apocalypse Now comes out in 79 Star, Jaws had come out in 75 right. Star Wars in 77 and the studio goes we don't need more of this Coppola Apocalypse Now stuff right. you know we'd much rather have this Star Wars stuff <laughs> the Spielberg stuff that makes a lot why would we risk our, our, our fortunes on these crazy people. Right. You know, I mean, Apocalypse Now does, in the long run, become a, a big hit. Absolutely. And every once in a while, certain films pop up that mirror that kind of thing, like Gangs in New York with so much money, or Waterworld. Like, you have these moments where they think they're going to make these kinds, they sink a lot of money into these films right. and they fall apart. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I want to talk about editing. Yeah. And we'll go through some other things, which is, 
Uh, so the editor on this film is Walter Murch. Yeah, I and love Walter Murch. And we talked about Walter Murch before when we talked about Touch of Evil. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I consider him really the patron saint of editors. Yeah. He is, and his book, In the Blink of an Eye, is a fantastic book on filmmaking, which you should read. And what he talks about this film is an idea of film to uh, ratio. Mm-hmm. And what this means is how much movie did you shoot, how many hours of footage, yeah. compared to how long the movie is. So if you're making a, a, a soap opera and you have three cameras running, well, you shot three hours of material for your one hour uh, of you know, movie or mm-hmm. TV show. So that's three to one. Right. Uh, Apocalypse Now, they shot 1,700 hours of film. Wow. Okay. For a two hour and a half movie. Yeah. So I can't do the math on the top of my head, but it's you know, 600 or something to one. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember that if you have 17 hours of film, you have to watch it. Yes. So just to watch the film, if you have a 40-hour week, is 400 mm-hmm. uh, is, is 40 weeks. <laughs> so so you basically just to watch the footage takes you a year. Yeah. Um, and obviously they had a lot of people, and so the complexity of editing this film, and you have Coppola going off on these flights of fancy, shooting all this stuff, and figuring out what that is. Yeah. That's a, that that's the editor. I always believed that there should be archives. There's just be a, a library archive created where you can store all the excess footage of all the films you've ever watched or loved, and so that you could spend a whole day watching, or the whole spend a whole week watching all the this footage that year. you couldn't get. Yeah, this case a year, right? All the footage that you couldn't get to or didn't see in the film. That would I always think as a filmmaker, or as a lover of film, that's such a fantastic gift you could give to people because you'd be like, it's immersing yourself in that world as much as possible. It's so funny and, and appreciating as, the film. As an more. editor, I just think that sounds so boring. <laughs> But when you're watching a genius, like it's like they get unreleased demos of art of Dylan or the Beatles. Like, sure, you get caught, you can still see shades of their genius in it, and there's an appreciation that can come from that, right? What was Coppola think? Why would he even shoot this? What was going on? Oh my God, I've had that thought before, or I've seen that image before. Wow, he used it. Wow, it's been around for a while. Like those kinds of things, you can really explore and enjoy so much about appreciating. But that's that's me because I'm the way I'm built. I like well, to I like to absolutely consume someone or something. You know, I'm just built that way. Well, and this is why, and I think that one of the differences between you and me is that you love film more than I do. What? No, I think so. I I, I really think that you, like, that. You just killed the show. You've just killed it. No, I I think we have a different, like, I. I, Oh, yeah. Like, we have a different way of thinking about it. Is that you you have pure love towards film Mm -hmm. in a way that I love taking it apart and analyzing it. Right. But uh, there's parts, you know, having watched a lot of raw footage and stuff, yeah, it's like, yeah. I just want to go to sleep. <laughs> like, you know, forget this. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. man. I could watch film documentaries and sports documentaries for the rest of my life. If I ever win the lottery, I would never do anything else. But you watch, would just, I would just consume every documentary there is about film or sports. Just consume it. Yeah. Because it's so fast. It's just fast. Those are the two subjects in my life that I find endlessly fascinating because of the human the human journey that everybody goes on when they make these amazing films or when they make the, or when they become right. these amazing figures in sports. It's just the way I am. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and that's what, I mean, I admire that. Yeah, and right. I have this, more, nice I have say. a more cynical, I don't know. Well, yours is technical. You have a yeah, technical I, approach to the, right. which, which I appreciate, which is why we work so well together on the show. I, I agree. Think. I anyway. Agree. <laughs> yeah. This show is sponsored by better help. 
Hello, Cinephiles fans. You know, we all kind of walk around with these stressors, big, small, medium in our lives that are triggered sometimes by frustrations at work or frustrations at our job or just frustrations overall about our life. Because sometimes you know this, if you compare, you despair and you just want to live a life that's a little bit more clean and accepting of yourself and a little more open to receiving positive messages for yourself so you can have that life that you want to live and have that great work-life balance. And it's not always easy. And for me, for years and years, I thought all of this stress, all of this hardship, I had to just carry on my own, that this is what it meant to be a man. And it was finally getting therapy where I realized like, oh, I don't have to carry that stuff. There's a place where I can unburden myself and actually get advice and guidance about how to deal with it better in the future. Yeah, Steve, you and I have spoken very proudly about how therapy has helped both of both of us deal with our stressors in our lives. And if any of you are listening to us who are thinking of starting therapy, well, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you have to do is to fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if things aren't working out, which I think is a great benefit. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Cinephiles today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. So back to this opening montage, which is so the opening montage is something that I teach in my class and usually spend an hour and a half, two hours going through it because Mm -hmm. it's so complex Mm -hmm. and so interesting in terms of editing, in terms of filmmaking. And and we're going to try an experiment, by the way, and we're going to put it up and maybe we'll include it within this podcast and maybe we'll put it up as a separate piece. I don't know. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a uh, commentary track. Yeah. And so we're going to play the uh, montage and we're going to have you, we'll do a countdown Mm -hmm. and you can at home. Put your disc in and hit play at the moment that we say go, yeah. and you can watch the montage and listen to us talk about it. Mm-hmm. But I want to say a few things first, which is that what's interesting to me about the montage is that is entirely created in post. There is nothing right. in that montage that was intended to be in the film in the way that it is. Mm-hmm. The opening shot of the film is from the middle of the film, yeah, and it was a discarded piece of footage. The, uh, the, the sequences with Martin Sheen is all improvised. Mm. The um, there are sequences from the end of the film. There's sound design that's completely unintentional that's created for this sequence. Right. So one of the interesting things about the film is it's very episodic. Yes. You know, is that you go through these sort of movements, each little piece, and the the uh, obviously we have the montage. We have the scene where we meet uh, the generals who give him the mission, which is to kill Curtis, yeah. and we get a young Harrison Ford. Yeah, a young Harrison Ford. Yeah, in a very different role. And this yeah. is not a star. And the senator from Godfather 2, which I oh, always forget right. his name right. yeah. as an actor. He's so great. Yeah, and he's improvising a lot. He's a guy who's like figuring out how to add a lot of, you know, here's a little more, yes. so you got to cut to me. you got to cut to me. And it's perfect casting because I've seen generals like that in my life in the military in eight years. Like yeah. it was, you see guys like that. They're just matter of fact and straightforward, and they're saying something without saying something else. Right. Yeah. Um, and Harrison Ford, by the way, which I didn't know. Mm-hmm. 
he literally got off the plane from Star Wars to go make this. Wow. This is shooting right well, after Star Wars. As well he should, because Coppola kind of discovered him building cabinets for him at his house. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I would do anything I, I would do anything for a guy well, and, who put me on the map. And he just made he, he just made what he probably thinks is this low-budget, dumb right. sci-fi movie. Exactly. And now he gets a chance to be in a Coppola movie. Yeah. So even though this is the star, he just did the thing that's going to make him a star. Right. And he comes off and plays this bit part in... Uh, Apocalypse Now. Well, it's like college, right? When you do films for people who know each other in college, right. you'd be in one film and they'll cast you because they're working as a DP or a PA or whatever yeah. on the film that their friends are doing. You get cast in there. For, like I, I went through a whole summer at Florida State where I got cast in six student films because the per- people who saw me on one film cast me on the next one, cast me on the next one. It's just, it just the way it's, so it's, it's kind of like a small version of that. Well, and this is just good advice for young filmmakers, young actors. Mm. Is in general, say yes. Yes. Just because you don't know who's going to be who. Absolutely. There's some of the most of the people that you're working with, they're probably not going to amount to anything. But one of those people, just might. one of those roles mm-hmm. could be something. Absolutely. Now, there's a limit to that. There's some things you should say no to. <laughs> yes. Um, Excessive nudity. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I say no to that all the and time. And dangerous situations. But yes, go ahead. Yeah. Well, then you should have said no to Apocalypse Now <laughs> uh, because there's a lot of dangerous situations. <laughs> something you got to remember when they're making this movie, there's no CG. Everything you see is really happening. When those actors are acting in a helicopter, flying around, and a flare goes off in the helicopter, they were in a helicopter with a flare on fire (laughs) flying around. Coppola's a nut. Coppola's a nut. Yeah. Yeah. And there's stuff. And he says, we are really lucky no one died. Of course. And they are really lucky no one died. Because even their lead, who had a heart attack, Martin Sheen. Right. During the filming of the the film. Yeah. And and, and this is, it's in Hearts of Darkness, and one of the, Mm. just, this is where... Coppola's insane. Yeah, is that the the movie's over budget? It's out of control. Right. The lead actor has a heart attack, and Coppola on film, his words to the people back home is, "He didn't have a heart attack until I say he had a heart attack." If Marty dies, I want to hear that everything's okay until I say Marty is dead. You got it? If it's not done, man, ship the whole office out of here. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Okay, I'm really scared, guys. The first time I've been scared on this movie. Because he's trying to protect his film. All right, because he's Kurtz. Because he's Kurtz. In my mind, he's Kurtz. Just like Wells with Kane, Coppola is is Kurtz in his own movie. He really is. He's Brando in the movie. Yeah. Because he's also a large man, you know, prone to uh, uh, excesses, and so is Kurtz. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, we arrive. The, f- the first we get on the boat, we mm-hmm. meet uh, Albert Hall, who's the chief of the boat. Yeah, uh, great actor. Uh, we meet uh, Lawrence Fishburne, who is fourteen years old. Fourteen years old, and that, by the way, would be illegal today. You can't work a guy of the way they're not. working it. Well, he lied to get on the film. He said he was eighteen. Oh, really? audition. Coppola yes. said because Coppola said he knew he was fourteen. No, Coppola's lying. Coppola's lying because Florence Fishburne has said this a number of times. Yeah. I lied to get on the film. I told him how old I was, and my mom signed the guardian stuff or whatever. They did not know he was 14. There was no way a, a mother sends their child right. into Cambodia at 14 years old to shoot this movie, or wherever they shot Philippines. the film. Philippines. Philippines, I'm sorry, yeah. And you have uh, Sam Bottoms yes. playing Lance in this great role as this blonde surfer, just wigged out guy. Yeah. And they get on the boat, and the first person they meet is Robert Duvall in... One of the great performances I've ever seen. Yep, Kilgore, yeah. Yeah, and he plays the Air Cav helicopter commander. Yeah. And that's when Martin, that's Martin Sheen's first days of shooting. Wow. And so he shows up on the set kind of nervous, and here's Duvall. And again, we have to remember that whatever is happening is really happening. Yeah. So when there's helicopters sweeping in behind him or explosions or all that stuff, 
and Duvall is standing while everyone else is ducking and showing no reaction to all these things. Yeah. He is really doing that. Mm -hmm. And Martin Sheen said the focus, like he's never seen an actor with greater focus than Robert Duvall. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Smell, you know that gasoline smell. The whole hill. Smells like victory. He is one of the unappreciated great actors. Everyone goes De Niro, Pacino, blah, blah, blah. Duval is as solid as they come, as spectacular as they come, and as layered as they come. Oh, yeah. And multifaceted. And you don't sure. catch him doing stupid comedies that undercut his legacy as an actor. No. Like, he is no, nothing as Pacino. Look, I, I would love to have ever accomplished anything like Pacino De Niro, but you have to talk truth. And Duval has never been caught up in those yeah. kinds of things. And that's what's so amazing about him. And he's still potent. He's still powerful today. Yeah. Even in The Judge, that Robert Downey Jr. Right. that wasn't that right. great, he was fantastic in it. Well, and the power you see from him in this yeah. movie, it's like a giant cannon just of the swagger. And, 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 the, and, and you see the admiration that everyone mm -hmm. has for him and the madness. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is like a precursor of Kurtz. Yes. You know, even though I don't think that Kilgore is going to become Kurtz because right. I don't think he has the depth yeah. to be that guy. But you see the, I mean, because what are they doing? Yeah. They are, they, they're going to bring the boat up to this place and take over this point. Why? Because it's a good surf, surfing yeah. spot. Yeah. Because apparently Robert Duvall surfs. <laughs> well, that's, this is my belief that Milius made that guy a parody of John Wayne. Like he made that guy a parody sure. of this American idea of war, right? Swaggering around with a handkerchief around his yeah. neck and, you know, said, Charlie, don't surf. You know, this whole, the, the, luna, the lunacy of, the, of a man like this in the middle of war. And I love the voiceover of Charlie Sheen, where he's like, you just knew this guy wasn't going to get so much right. as a scratch. And it's true because of this. There are people you meet that have this energy that you just know they're not going to get touched and those people are not aware of it they're not aware of no. the energy that they're conveying and they they're just like gonna do go through un, just completely unscathed and duval does such a great job of, in, of encapsulating that character in every single interaction he has on film yeah it, it, it's remarkable and you're so blown away by this yeah. guy and uh and it is your first clue that this film as a whole is going to be a descent into madness. Yes. Uh, Coppola likens it to Dante's Inferno, that it you're really going should. through each of these layers mm -hmm. as you go down into the depths of hell and mm -hmm. each one more insane. And this is why I go, this is not an accurate movie about Vietnam. <laughs> no, of course. You know, like, right, is, right. we're not supposed to take this as this is Vietnam. We're yeah. supposed to take this as this is a movie about the madness within man's soul. Mm -hmm. And you see the first piece of that with Kogor. I think the film is elegant because I hear this word. I rarely use that word, but that's what that's it feels good. like to me. That's a $50 word. Right yeah, there. well, it just, it just, there are rarely, uh, there are rare films that really convey that. And to me, this film does. It's elegant. You are along for the ride, literally and figuratively, in the boat and also yeah. in your own self as you're watching the movie. Well, and, and this is why, too, that you can't get out of the movie and go, ah, oh, that's what this is about. Yeah. I no, get it. Oh, no. No, this is a movie where you go, because you like Kilgore. You like Robert Duvall. You do. You're like, wow, look at that guy. Not that you want to hang out Against with Against your own instincts, you yeah. like him. And you watch it and you go, this is insane. Yeah. And when those, so we get to, you know, they're going to go surf. So what do they do? They load the boards up on those helicopters and they go in blasting what? Ride of the Valkyries. Yeah. In one of the most iconic moments in film history. Can I challenge anybody 
not get inspired in that moment. Even though they know they're going to do something really terrible, terrible. there's that you get caught up in it because that music is perfect. And by the way, that's Arlie Ermy, very young Arlie Ermy as one of the helicopter pilots oh. talking, who is the drill sergeant in uh, Full Metal Jacket. I that's, had no idea. Yep, he's, you see him in the corner just talking and you hear him on, on, the, on the mic. And, oh, wow. Yeah, that's if, I, if I were capable of watching this movie again, I would want to go... <laughs> I take, it, well, see, uh, this is the difference between you. I can watch this movie every day. Yeah, no, because no. I love it to pieces. I went and saw it at the Egyptian like uh, four or five months ago, just just for shits and giggles because I just love this movie so yeah, much. I found it so. There was a certain point after I had watched the commentary track, and, mm. and I'm watching Redux, and I'm watching the theatrical, and I'm just and I felt the weight. Yeah, you know, it's oh, sure. he- it's heavy on me. It, it's it's heavy. <laughs> so they they fly in, and so this is the uh, Philippine army. Yes, and they've said you could do whatever the fuck you want with our helicopters, right. which is sort of crazy. The American military would never say this, right? But the thing that's happening at the same time is there's rebels uh, up in who you know eventually win because Marcos is deposed, but yeah. the rebels and every once in a while the helicopters would just get up and fly away because they had to go fight the rebels that's in true. the middle of the shoot. <laughs> Um, just the madness of the film, the madness of the shooting, the madness of the film. It's so great. It's Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and this is a good question. So what we should talk about is Redux. <sighs> is Apocalypse Now Redux? If we have to, yes. We do have to. Fine. Uh, so I'm <laughs> sensing that you are not a fan. I hate Redux. Hate, hate, hate Redux. Because it comes in these extra scenes are nice, but they add nothing to the film, especially the French plantation scene. That is nuttiness, nuttiness, nuttiness. It's excess of the Conrad and Dante Inferno thing. It's it's an excess, you know? The sitting in the helicopter with the with the strippers and everything. It's all excess that's unnecessary. The film is already a masterpiece. Adding to it, to me, is to, the Redux is akin to what Coppola, I mean, the Lucas did going back and editing the original trilogy and putting in stuff that he did. Like, that is the same thing to me. I think they're different. Uh, so, so I'm sensing a lot of emotion. I'm going to stop now, Steve. Go ahead. Okay. So, uh, I don't like Redux either. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I, I, I do think from a from, as a filmmaker, I think yeah. you should watch it because I think there are lessons, lessons to be learned in yeah. a way that there are no lessons to be learned from George Lucas's changes. Right. In particular, George Lucas added things that had not existed before. Mm-hmm. Coppola did shoot these things, and but if you listen That's to that's a good on, point. You're right. If you listen to him on the commentary track. He's not sure they should be in the mm-hmm. film. You know, there are things he's in. It's interesting to hear why he likes them and why he shot them. Mm-hmm. And then to look at, and this is where the editing process can be very subtle. And one of the things that those sequences do is all of them humanize Willard. Yes. And this is one of the key things of why they shouldn't be in the film. Agreed. And the reason I brought it up here is so we're off with Kilgore and the surfing. And in the original version, it just ends. Mm-hmm. And then we're back on the boat. Yes. And in the Redux version, uh, Willard hopes manipulate the situation and they run away from Kilgore stealing his board. Right. And as they jump back on the boat, as they've escaped this madman, you see Martin Sheen smiling. Yes. Martin Sheen never smiles no. in the original version. And I think just that one shot mm-hmm. ruins the film almost more than Absolutely. the French plantation. Does. Absolutely agree with you. Um, and, and this is the subtlety of editing. Is that, and I had this situation in uh, The Assistance where we did our rough cut and we show the film and we go, how'd you like it? And people say, oh, I liked it. I liked you know, that guy who was an asshole for the beginning. You knew he was going to screw his friends and he did. Mm. And I went... 
that's not what the movie's supposed to be. <laughs> and so we had to figure out how to, because the film was about someone, you know, I wanted them to like him. Yeah, the yeah. And then be with him and see him make these choices and then be kind of shocked by how it goes at the end. Right, right. And we had failed. And then it became a very subtle bunch of editing choices to hopefully move the film in that direction. Yeah. Uh, and with when Martin Sheen smiles... You you have made him a human in a way that he shouldn't be a human in the right. film. He is a passive observer who is filled with all of these emotions, which you mm. learn about at the very beginning in the montage. Yeah. But he does not express them. He's not trying to like these guys on the boat. Right. Same thing with the scene with the bunnies, which made no sense to me anyway. Yeah. And it's completely bizarre. This is so the they're the bunnies that are in the show, uh, the USO show, and they find them later on. Who knows why they're in this place in right. these rained out helicopters? That's what happens. That's what happened back then, yeah. Um and yeah, but they're stuck. It's very strange. I mean, oh it's, no, no, it's, when yeah. they're stuck in the helicopter, yeah, that's different. But like doing the show, oh, the itself, show, show, that's what they no, did all that. the time. No, yeah. I get the show. I don't get like how did they end up in these helicopters? Yeah, and, yeah. And yeah. that they would sleep with the guys on the boat for some barrels of gas, right. and it's just all so that seventies excess. Yeah, yeah. It's and and again, what uh, Martin Sheen's character does is go, hey, I traded our gas so you guys can have sex with these Playboy bunnies. <laughs> so and again, it humanizes him. Yeah, and we don't want to humanize him. No, he doesn't like the guys on the boat. He's not connecting with them. He's not. Not friends mm-hmm. with him. Because in a film like this, like you said, Steve, he's a passive guy. In a film like this, he has to be our uh, our right. eyes into the movie. And so uh, when you do a film like this, you have to have that character that you... So we, we can't have him judging everything he's watching or seeing. He's Because we're going to do that ourselves, naturally. Right. So he has to be the passive guy until he makes that decision at the end with Kurtz. But until then he is the passive guy and we are experiencing it as he's experiencing. Yes. Does he occasionally comment? Absolutely. But most of the time it's our interpretation that he is allowing space for by not commenting and judging on it immediately. You know, right. He is in, he is experiencing it just as we're experiencing it. And that's fantastic. And he's not involved. He doesn't want these guys to like him. Right. He doesn't, he is an active, which is, you know, again, Everything I would say not to do in a character mm. in my screen, if I was doing a screenwriting class, <laughs> just have a character sitting there while these things are happening. What yeah. does he do? Yeah. How do we, you know, and, and yet, of course, this works. And one way that it makes it work, by the way, is the voiceover. The yes. Narration. Oh, man. What a great voiceover. Unbelievable. And, uh, you know, you hear this. Uh, this is not something I agree with, but you hear this in screenwriting classes all the time yeah. is voiceover is the refuge of the weak screenwriter. Yeah, I hate that crap. I do too. I think bad voiceover is the refuge of the weak. I mean, there are times where someone goes, I have no idea how to explain what's going on. I guess I'll have some voiceover. Well, that's bad. Right. But you can't argue Shawshank Redemption. You can't argue Little Children. You can't argue Apocalypse Now. Uh, And there's a couple of other ones that you can't argue that for me. Fight Club, yeah. When voiceover is used effectively, it is so powerful. Oh, oh, the assassination of Jesse James by the Mm -hmm. coward Robert Ford. Great voiceover. These voiceover, when it's done correctly, voiceover enriches the film so much more. And you could argue your Blade Runner, which version you like. I still enjoy the voiceover of Blade Runner for my own own reason. Reasons, but I Part enjoy it, it without. I, I saw it ten times. Yes, that, and yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. can't not hear it. Exactly. It's good voiceover. Absolutely. Um, um, the movie actually works. Uh, it's another movie we'll do at some point. Mm-hmm. But the movie works without it. Uh, but, the, yeah. but and in this this movie, the voiceover is so. So one thing that's interesting about it is the way that it's mic'd. Yeah. So uh, in general, uh, you mic a certain distance and you speak at a certain volume. You and I kind of talk at a fairly high volume. Sure. And we don't have the mics like right up in our face. Right. Uh, Martin Sheen, they close mic'd him. So the mic is really, really close. And they had him speak in a very, a very soft way. I love it. So the mic is right here. Right. 
I hardly said a word to my wife until I said yes to a divorce. When I was here, I wanted to be there. When I was there, all I could think of was getting back into the jungle. And it gives you the sense that you are in his thoughts. Yeah. And it, it's very intimate. He's not talking at you. No. He is whispering in your ear. He's talking. It's, and, and so it's, these emotions are coming directly from him. Right. There, there's a realness in that voiceover. I've always envisioned this as 3 a.m. at a bar yeah. when you've been drinking all night and smoking, whatever, and you're just kind of in that space and he just starts talking and you're sitting right next to him and he's telling you this whole story. That's what I've always envisioned when I hear the voiceover. So here's a, here's a story from the voice. They had a military advisor, some guy, Green Beret guy. Yeah. They brought him in. And uh, I think he had helped write the voiceover, something like that. That mm -hmm. could be wrong, so, sure. so don't take my facts on that. But, but he comes to the VO session, and they're in the studio, and you know, introduces everyone. And, and he says, oh, I got something for Marty. And they go, oh, okay. And he walks in, and he, and he says, here, put out your hand. Marty puts out his hand, and he puts in his hand a loaded forty-five. Holy shit. He says, hold this during the voiceover. Wow. He did not. I don't think he did. <laughs> Put it away. But that is uh, that is some. That is, and that's a military guy. Yeah. That's a military guy thinking this. that way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's get to the USO show. Sure. What do you think of the USO show? I think it's such a perfect fit in the film because of how wacky that U.S. show is and the commentary, once again, the voiceover that Sheen has in that moment when he says, the more they tried to make it like home, the more they missed it, yeah. right? And it's such a great thing because, yeah, because they come in and the girls are dancing and all this jazz. But, of course, these guys haven't seen a woman in how long and they're stuck in the jungle and they're young. And so they well, start the women to... women are literally taunting them. Well, you know? I wouldn't say taunting. They're doing what they're doing. Of course. Right. But... They're doing their, stri uh, their dance and they're in their nice Santa Claus clothes. And it's a job for them. They're three women sure. who are you know, getting paid to do whatever, which is why I hate that they have sex for, for gas. I hate that completely I undercuts agree. their character. They're there doing a job. You know what I'm saying? And so they're, they're doing a job, but unfortunately they're doing in bunch, a bunch of young men who are trapped, you know, and, trapped and sexually turned on and don't have a way of, uh, don't have that perspective to handle it correctly. So they become a bunch of monkeys in a zoo yelling and throwing their feces and they start to, um, and they start to attack. They jump into the water. You know, the guy who is, I think it's Bob Graham, the guy, the famous, uh, Billy Graham, Billy Graham, Bill, sorry, Bill Graham, Bill Graham. Yeah. The famous, uh, promoter and whatever right. who plays the head of the, of the, uh, or who's in charge of those girls and then sets the flare off, does, does the whole piece Nixon sign, which is yeah. brilliant, then jumps into the helicopter and takes off because with guys, hanging on the yeah, runners because yeah. they, with their pants coming down because yeah. that's the nuttiness of it so that's why I love the USO show because it reinforces the craziness that's going on in Vietnam at the time I, I do too and I think this is the moment this is when, not Bob Hope is what I'm trying to say oh God, yeah, no. yeah. Uh, this is the moment I think when I saw it in high school when I first saw it where I went I don't understand like that's the moment like I was in okay I see this messed up guy yeah. and he's gonna go kill this guy yeah. we meet this crazy surfer helicopter guy and like okay yeah and I'm, I'm still watching a war movie sure on some level and then we get to the USO show and I go in high school <laughs> I don't understand what this is. I don't know how I'm supposed to feel. Right. And, and but this is what happens in war. They have these USO shows. Yeah. And that's what I love about the film that it's, it's juxtaposed because in, in the World War II, you have those famous Bob Hope USO with Marilyn Monroe. Sure. And, how you about that? He was, still doing a, he was still doing Vietnam. He yeah. was still doing yeah. the Desert Storm. That's true. Bob that's Hope. true. You're right. You're right. But this is not a this Bob Hope show. That. And I love the Coppola and, of course, Walter Murch, including in the editing, the shot of the Vietnamese people behind the fences oh, yeah. eating their rice with their hands watching the excesses of America. It's just yeah. brilliant. I'm yeah. sorry. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, and then we get to uh, 
there's so many sequences. We're not going to go through all yeah, of yeah. them. But a really important really one should, is, the, yeah. is the sampan. Is the boat. Oh, yes. Is the boat. And they pull over a boat. And this is uh, Albert Hall. Just great performance as mm -hmm. the chief. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are Navy guys, which is always sort of interesting. They're yeah. not that, that Willard's army. Um, and they pull over uh, this boat to search it. And yeah. you got Chef on the boat, and they're trying to do this efficient thing. And Chef's so frustrated, frustrated, and you could feel the tension is up. Yeah, and you could feel everyone's talking fast, and everyone's yelling, and they're screaming, and Fred is going through, or, or Chef is going through yeah. things really fast, and then it ends up in a massacre. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is the idea of the cast, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, they said we need to do Milai. We need to do oh, Massacre. their version of my, uh, Milai. Yeah, oh, or My Lai. Oh, yeah, say. that's brilliant. Um, okay, and that came that. from the cast. And Coppola goes, okay, yeah. Um, and and the other thing too is they had this moment. They they went okay, they're, as they're trying to figure it out, is they went, well, what's the girl going to run for? Mm -hmm. She's going to he's going to go turn over a can or something, and she's going to run for it, and they're yeah. going to kill her. And they said, well, what is it? And they said, well, it needs to be something that makes you really sad. So they pick a puppy, and then they get a cute puppy, and they're shooting the scene, and then um, Sam Bottoms goes, I need to take that puppy, and that's why he has a puppy for the rest of the, for the movie. <laughs> okay, it makes it's sense. Because it just, same thing with Martin Sheen, yeah. off camera, fell and cut his cheek. Oh. And, and so Coppola goes to one of his military guys and goes, what would you do if you cut your cheek? And they go, we'd put a Band-Aid on it. Yeah. And so that's why Martin Sheen has a Band-Aid, which turned into a huge continuity issue, because they're like... They didn't know, is this before this or yeah. after this? The movie's in chaos. <laughs> and so Martin Sheen has abandoned because that's what happened. I just, I, I think that sequence is great too because you see the frustration of the yeah. situation. You see, because it's Fishburne who turns the gun on. He's four, you know, he's a young kid. He's the youngest kid on the boat. Yeah. He's, he just, because he reacts, right? Because that's the level of fear and tension that you had in that war. That's the moment in those moments. You make those mistakes. Like there's so many stories of these terrible things that occurred in, over in Vietnam because they're these young kids being plotted out of these suburban houses or inner city uh, situations and being put into this completely complete madness that they are not at all capable of handling and they, these are the things that occur at times and this is set up in the movie because in the uh, Kilgore sequence yeah. there's a woman who runs up to a helicopter exactly and blows it up right under her hat with the under bomb her in her hat yeah and so we have this moment and it's not that we're not facing these things today in no, Afghanistan right. and Iraq it's true is that and what you put you know what you put our soldiers through and mm -hmm. having to make this life and death decision because it's either you shoot and you're wrong yeah or you don't shoot and you're wrong well look at good morning vietnam right the the brother of the same girl thing. yeah it's the same thing like that was just what happened there were double agents all the time and you we try to put our morality on a completely messed up country that doesn't have that uh, upbringing or or centuries of capitalism and domestication like it's a whole other ball game and for us to put judgment on that is ridiculous well and I, where i disagree with you is mm. If we were taken over by another country, yeah. and you, you know, you know, what one person's oh, well, terrorism no, no, is another person's courage. That's what I'm saying. Know? That's what I'm saying. I don't think that's why judging it is is a very difficult right. thing to do in a rocky road to go down because you have no concept of what his, his centuries right. of history is like in that country. Yeah, right. I think that's the danger. Yeah, yeah. The um uh, and so that 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 frames the movie. Once you go through that boat, like you go, okay, mm -hmm. things are mm -hmm. things are different now. As soon as you start to feel some affinity for them, that moment happens. Yeah. And, and, and now you can't. And, and what happens is horrible. And what they do is horrible. And what do they have to do after that moment? They have to go on. Yeah. They don't get to go, hey, we, we messed up here. Let's, right. Let's, let's step, take a step back. Let's write the reports out. Yeah, and try to let's figure this out. Fight, no, yeah, we just no. have to go forward. Yeah. And then we come to the bridge. Oh, gosh. 
and, and we entered this bridge and uh, Lance Sam Bottoms' character is kind of acting strange and they go he goes what's up and he says you know that last have acid Lance hey Lance what do you think it's beautiful huh I mean what's what's the matter with you you acting kind of weird <laughs> hey you know that last tab of acid I was saving yeah I dropped it you dropped acid far out to me and of course this is true i mean in vietnam they're doing a lot of drugs sure i I, i'm gonna reveal that i might have certain experiences in this area that's all right and uh it's a free country uh not not for that okay sure um uh i wouldn't do it in a war zone (laughs) well but maybe you had to but also this was the advent of the drug culture becoming a big deal in the 70s right so it makes sense to do it in vietnam it makes sense in the film that it would be there and that he would do that because sam bottoms is is, he plays this california type archetype right this guy who's like a surfer and he's painting himself the flares he's doing the whole ah stuff while they're going through the fog because to him everything is an experience man and so when he drops the tab of acid it's it's just his way of of disconnecting from the madness and right. dealing with it the only way that his character can. Right. And and Coppola, who claims, by the way, that he has never done acid, uh, claims. Um, I, I might not have. I don't sure. know. Um, he, he That became the model for how he shot that sequence yeah. was, and it is a trip. Yeah. People move in and out of the light and the, the, the use of wide-angle lenses and, you yeah. know, the, the amazing moments of... I think you no, dead, stupid. There's one still alive underneath their bodies. Who's the commanding officer here? Ain't you? You've entered this world of madness, this right. place where this bridge is built every day and blown up every night and built the next day mm-hmm. and people are firing into the darkness and yelling at but don't know who they're firing at or why yeah. they're firing or what direction they're firing. And then there's this great moment with the character of Roach with the grenade launcher. Yeah. And he sort of swoops in in this sort of really yeah. druggy sort of way, right? And it is again madness. And this is the uh, you know this is the other side of to a degree the African American experience right. in Vietnam being highlighted in this sequence. Oh, you yeah. know, you have obviously uh, obviously Albert Hall, who's the more like he's in charge, he's the leader of the boat, you know that kind of jazz. He he knows the right way. To do. But then you see these guys who are the grunts down in these in the what they call the asshole of the world, you know, right. down in that area, and they're all just like freaking out in certain moments. And then you have the hardcore brother who steps up with that grenade, line, listens, gauges from his ear where he's going to shoot that grenade. And then launches it, and you hear the woman and the, all this talking. Yeah, GI, you dead GI, all this kind of stuff. Right. Like all of that. To me, that's the moment that really reinforces that we're in Dante's Inferno, that we're oh, yeah. on some, well, and, we're in the underworld. And in that sequence, yeah. you have the people, which is right out of Dante's Inferno, yeah. rushing to the boat, saying, Take "Yes, us with you, with suitcases with and suitcases. letters and something." Yeah, well, the and, nuttiness. And, and of with it. Roach, this guy that fires the grenade. Yeah, that that moment is ended with again Martin Sheen asking the question, "Hey, soldier." Do you know who's in command here? Yeah. And then <laughs> he drifts back into the blackness. That's right, because he knows the commanding officer is the devil, is God. It's the, the nut. That's what's so brilliant about that sequence. I'm sorry, Steve. I love this film so much. No, it's. I, it's, I don't it's, want to get too emotional. It's an amazing film, and, and we should talk about. <sighs> it's a good time to talk about. Yeah. I think it's Vittorio Storaro who is the the, the DP. Yes. Uh, so great because this movie and I would highly recommend uh, this is where you got to have the Blu-ray 
mm-hmm. because I've never seen this movie. I haven't seen it in the theater as you have. Uh, the movie looks uh, remarkable. I'm going to take you to see it in the theater at some point. Go ahead. I, no, it's a date. Not, yeah. not this week, please. <laughs> no, no. We've got other stuff going on. No, no. It's I just certainly... can't handle it. I can't handle it. I can't do it anymore. Once we're done with this podcast, I'm going to watch some comedies. I'm going to go. I'll go watch Airplane or something. You know, like maybe Beverly Hills Cop. I, I might something light. And I might put it on again to watch Apocalypse. <laughs> Because I'm crazy. Good, good go luck, ahead. sir. Yes, good go luck. Um, uh, so the be- the cinematography is gorgeous, and you yes. look at and, and 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 there's tremendous color control. There's tremendous. Mm-hmm. So, so for instance, when we go in the jungle to look for mangoes, everything's blue. Yes, you know. There's there's times where there's a huge orange wall. This who knows what it's there for yeah, yeah, yeah. on the side of the river. The use of shooting at golden hour, golden hour is sunset, sunrise, mm-hmm. uh, which is extremely difficult to shoot at because. It only lasts for a few minutes, and yeah. you have to have all your ducks in a row. And just the beautiful lighting, the beautiful control of light and shadow. And so when we get to this bridge sequence, yeah. it is people in and out of the light in mm-hmm. this gorgeous, beautiful, and trippy way yeah. amidst this tremendous violence. Well, And this is something that I did a little bit of research on like before we did the podcast. They talk about this. like The greens are as green as they can be. Yeah. The fire at the beginning and the opening montage, which right. we talked about, the napalm, that's as, as bright orange as it is. Like all these things are vibrant colors, right? Because you have this, you have to be engrossed in this world and feel the idea that it's, it's a fantastical world. Exactly. Right? Not a fantastic world, a fantastical world, you know? So. Well, and again, a journey into your soul. Yes. A journey into your subconscious. Right. You know, that it is not just the real world. And it yeah. becomes less real as we go along. Yes. As we enter into the fog. Mm-hmm. You know, as we have the world where... And one of Coppola's ideas was it's not just that they're going into madness or into the human soul. Yeah. But they're going back in time. Yeah. You know, so you get the sequence... Yeah. Which is out of Heart That's of Darkness. That's great. Yeah. Where uh, all of a sudden they're being attacked with with arrows. Yeah. Did anyone ever get attacked with arrows in Vietnam? I've never heard of it. <laughs> no. I don't think it's... I don't think we're in Vietnam anymore. Right. we've entered the heart of darkness. Now. Yeah. And into Cambodia. Right, because they've gone upriver into Cambodia. And right. uh, what's great about that sequence, too, brother, is the way it ends with Albert Hall. Like, of course, I, I think that's right after the Lawrence Fishburne situation, too, where right. it's one of the most saddest moments. I cry every time in that sequence because I, when I was in the military and, like, really missing home, you get those letters. Those letters, those cassettes, they matter, man. They really do matter in those moments, even if you're just kind of doing basic or kind of doing AIT. It's still a connection back home. And uh, to hear his mom talking on that cassette while he's been killed... Uh, and the feeling that uh, uh, Albert Hall has as he watches another young... I said, that's the thing. Like, even that moment is an exploration of the African-American situation right. in America, that a young black man died 3,000 miles away from his home 12. for nothing, yeah. for nothing. Just yeah. like it's what Ali was talking about. Ain't no, ain't no uh, Viet Cong ever called me the N-word, right? right? That's what he's talking about, this useless waste of life for nothing. Well, and in that sequence, it's just you see the tracer bullets coming out of the jungle. Right. We don't know who we're fighting. Exactly. There's no, And as you said, you said this so smartly at the beginning, there's no real battle against an army in no. this movie. No, no, no. It's always just arrows coming out of the dark. Yeah. It's the bridge where it's, you know, things coming out of the mm-hmm. dark. It's a tiger coming out of nowhere. Yeah. There's no enemy. <laughs> Never get out of the boat. Yeah. Um, and by the way, that's, uh, that is Fishburne's mom on the recording. What? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Coppola. Co- I'm going to cry even more now. Next yeah. Time Coppola, Coppola said, write a letter that you would write to your son at war. And she wrote it. And then he had her record it. Damn, that's, that's, ah, damn, dude. Yeah. Damn. All right. <clears throat> 
And, the, and again, this is the experimental filmmaker. Yeah. The, the non-experimental filmmaker maybe doesn't do that. Yeah, cast an actress. Cast an actress. Yeah, yeah, of course. But this is like, no, let's, let's make it real. Let's have, the Coppola always wanted to make it real. So brilliant, man. And by the way, that tracer bullet scene, because again, everything yeah. they do is real. Yeah. Now, those aren't tracer bullets. Right, right, right. Because they, but they are like kind of, uh, you know, Roman candles. They're, they're little fireworks yeah, yeah. shooting. And they're flying at them like they really crazy. Are. Yeah. And it is really dangerous. Yeah. And Coppola was on the boat, by the way. He's on the boat for most of the shoot. Oh, okay. He's always with the guys like hiding behind something right. to direct them but um, i took us away look we were talking about the arrows coming out oh and I, what i wanted to talk about too because we yeah. talked about uh Storaro, the yeah. unbelievably brilliant dp and, and and by the way as much as you might not like that french plantation scene it is shot gorgeous oh, oh absolutely and there's one yeah. shot in particular where he uh sheen meets the young french woman that he's yes. gonna have an affair. and by the way that's a fascinating scene yeah it shouldn't be in the movie right um but he he's kind of having this romantic moment and there's a sunset in the background and i was watching that go because it's right at the moment mm -hmm. the sun has already gone below the horizon <laughs> and i'm watching that going you have six minutes to shoot that <laughs> shot or that light's gone and at the time the one of the problems with golden hour yeah. is the light is shifting so fast that if you go like okay we've got it and then yeah. an actor needs their makeup checked your lights are wrong right. and you have to rebalance because now you're you're three stops lower see and this is the difference between you and i right like you look at it that way and i'm looking at sheen's face to right. see what his reaction or her reaction right. to their to their dialogue is to see what the, the that's so awesome because well, you have emotions and feelings and i well you i'm know, an actor just, that's just a different thing yeah. i look for different things you know uh we also if we're gonna talk about star we got to talk about yeah. dean tavalaris who is the production designer yeah this is a coplas production designer on godfather mm -hmm. and the thing you had to remember, so when you watch this film, again, as a filmmaker, everything is built. Yeah. There is almost nothing that they do. Not the temple with Kurtz, not the bridge, not the village that yeah. they bomb. That existed. Yeah. All of that is built by Dean Tavalaris. Wow. And this is, again, where you get into, we have extremely cheap labor. Yeah. Because they could build this stuff. Yeah. And blow it up and yeah. build it again. I mean, it is the production, the whole French plantation. That's entirely constructed. Wow. It is uh, remarkable what yeah. they do. Well, and that's what adds to the film. like that, And that's when you can say things about Coppola as a filmmaker. He had a vision with Tavalaris about what he wanted it to look like, right? You got to have to... That's what you talk about, Steve, the whole idea of mapping it out. Yeah, maybe he was improv and creating stuff on it, but he was also mapping out what's, what he wanted these things to look like. And that's the preparation of a filmmaker, right? Understanding what are the ways I want it to look. And then Merch comes in, edits, and finds the right pieces that puts it all together. Yeah. But the creation of these things is in conjunction with the filmmaker. And so that's where you have to give a, sure. a, a, even a lot of credit to Coppola as well sure. as Tavalaris. Yeah. And, and, and also I have to assume that people just hated Coppola. I'm but, sure. Because, because the one thing that kills your crew is making them do extra work. Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> yeah, so, here, so here's an example that just works out in Coppola's favor. So they build the USO show, mm -hmm. they build the big set, the whole thing. Yeah. And they finish it and it's right next to the river and the the stage is away from the river and and coppola goes as they're finishing you know what would be really cool is if the stage was like on the river and they go we already built this this is a big set and you know what happens next what the typhoon oh that's right wipes out the set yes and so then they build it again this time <laughs> on the river and now again so so this is what happens sometimes is you go all right we built this set on the river yeah how do you light it and the answer is, what Storaro comes up with, is they build huge rafts to put the lights on, yeah. which you see in the film. 
Um, yeah. Which you would never do for a USO show. Like, why would, why would you do this? And you wouldn't do a USO show at night like that in that stage, in that situation. Well, particularly that far. I mean, we're given the impression you're pretty far up north. Yeah. Like, the USO show is going to be down near Saigon. Right, it's exactly. It's not going to be <laughs> up there. That's right. Um, uh, so you were going to say, you were going to talk about Albert Hall's death. Oh, yeah. Albert Hall's death is fantastic to me because, once again, see, the thing that's brilliant about the film is it doesn't have to belabor the point, right? The sequence here with, with him, he's killed by a spear. Yeah. As an African American killed by a spear, there is an, a there is a symbolism in that, right? Because, like you said earlier in this podcast, he is going. The film is going back in time. Yep. So we're going back to Albert's or this character, the tribal roots of an African American, right? He's killed by a spear. The way he says a spear, yep. that's that's acting, man. In yep. two words, there is this uh, heritage moment, the shock. The irony that he's killed by a spear as a civilized African-American in America in a war, he is killed by a spear, right. which is uh, echoes back to his ancestors. And that is so much power, man. And the anger he has at Sheen yeah. for his death, man. Well, in the next moment, because oh. in the next moment, he's we go, oh, he's dead. Yeah. And Sheen's over him. And then he grabs Sheen oh, by God. the head. Yeah. And it seemed, my feeling is, he's trying to pull Sheen onto the spear that killed him. Yes, he's trying to he, kill. Yes, I think so, him. too. And it is so violent and yeah, so scary right. and so and you see Sheen put him down because he has to. Yeah. Yeah. So in talking about Albert Hall, we got to talk about his character. Yeah. And he's an actor. I think he's a real underrated actor. Absolutely. Um, he has a solidness mm -hmm. and a straight a straightness. Like like we talked about this in terms of casting. We talk about Keitel versus yeah. Martin Sheen is that actors bring their own quality. Mm -hmm. And there's something about when Albert Hall says something to you, you believe him. Yeah. In, is, no matter what movie you're watching, yeah. it could be the dumbest of comedies or the most yeah. serious of dramas. I mean, like the, the best example I think of is in Malcolm X. Yes. His performance so is, I'm telling you the truth. Yeah. And that's it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in this film, he I'm is, telling you God's words. No, yeah. No hustle. I right. that line. Good. Yeah. And it was so sad because then he ends up turning on him. Malcolm yeah. uses it later. Yeah. Against him, which is brilliant. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, so yeah, he has an ability to be completely straight and that, and, and that, and that has an honor in it. Yeah. In the way that, uh, Willard doesn't have yeah, because Willard is a killer. Uh, Albert Hall wants to take care of his boat yeah. and follow the rules of the boat. And this is what we do. And this is how we do it. Mm -hmm. And in a way, strangely enough, I think that's a kind of madness. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Well, I can see that. To yeah. be the, cause you're in, you're in the land of the crazy yeah. and you're just sitting there trying to follow orders. You created this arbitrary set of rules to follow on a boat, right? Just because you've been handed the keys to the boat. And of course in the military, you have to follow the arbitrary rules. Mm -hmm. Not just you have to follow them because otherwise you get in trouble, but without rules. Yeah. We're Kurtz. Chaos ensues. Yeah. So after, after his death, after that powerful moment where he's trying to kill Martin Sheen and then yeah. he dies, we get the burial. Yeah. This beautiful water burial returning uh his body back to the jungle back to uh nature you yeah. know it's such a beautiful uh sequence which of course you would never do in the military no of course not because you have to bring the bodies back of course you would never leave a body behind right uh one thing that's interesting in addition and it's to lance it, who it's, once again yeah. doing his experience thing and uh, in, in, in addition to it being beautifully shot, yeah. I mean, just the way that his body goes below the water uh, is just, just and, amazing. And I wonder about, because I'm sure that's actually Albert Hall, yeah. is that's not comfy to do that shot, to no. slowly be lowered with your f nose facing up. I'm sure yeah. I mean, they probably pinched his nose. And God knows what's in that water. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is that uh, Lance is wearing the arrow through his head. Yes. And one of the things Coppola felt about that moment was he said, 
is that going to make people laugh? I don't want, and, and, and he felt that the moment was strong enough yeah. that the arrow through the head would add to the absurdity, but not make it comedic. Yeah. And he's right. Yeah. I think that's absolutely successful. Absolutely. Just as, and by the way, what I should have said when we talked about the boat and the massacre yeah. is the final moment on the boat is, so there's, they find one woman, young woman, yeah. still alive. She's yeah. still alive. We're going to have to call in a medic oh, yes. right, to do all this. Oh. And Sheen gets up. He walks across the boat, stands over, draws his forty five, and shoots her in the head. Yeah. And that is, you know, we talked about why in Redux it sh we shouldn't have Sheen yeah. bond with the crew. Yeah. And this is exactly why. Because yeah. in this moment, he is separated from the crew. Right. He is not part of them. Right. And they're disconnectedness their hatred their the pain because he what what their massacre was an unfortunate accident emotions yeah. were high mm -hmm. decisions were made that were poor decisions his execution of this woman is murder it's the only active moment he has in the film until right. the end that's right it's the only one motivated by his own instincts well, you everything else is motivated by kurtz absolutely right yeah. and this relates to what you said before earlier about what kurtz is saying yeah was the idea of separating out this is okay in war and this is right. not okay war right. that in and of itself is madness yeah you know so that they wipe out she didn't wipe out the boat yeah. he would not have wiped out the boat right but his action of shooting the wounded person in the head is feels worse mm -hmm. than what happened in the moment because before. it's not accidental it's purposeful yeah yeah uh, and, and this goes into what kurtz's argument is is like we're already killers yeah we're already savages we should probably talk about that now is the journey of the boat i think the next step after after albert hall is after going, albert hall is we're going to go see kurtz yeah so obviously brando had worked with coppola on uh godfather does this tremendous performance and yeah Brando was quite young when he did Godfather and made up to look much older. And so they make the agreement to do Apocalypse Now. The agreement is for $3 million, $1 million per week. Mm -hmm. and that's it. Hard stop, hard finish. And Brando shows up fat. Yeah. This guy is supposed to be the world's toughest Green Beret guy. And Coppola doesn't have an ending. And so this continues literally day after day. You have a whole crew standing by. They're not shooting. Yeah. It's Brando and Coppola holed up in a room talking trying to figure out what the ending in the movie is <laughs> with genius and genius this is this is to think that you can you think you can put borders around genius to me is always ridiculous like brando for all your uh, people's arguments about working with brando look at the results right i mean that's the thing and it's unfortunate he knows it too which i think is the malevolent nature of his genius it's, and you see that so he's putting all these people on hold he's putting all these people waiting for him because He's Brando, and he has to understand the character. Because in in Joseph Conrad's novel, he's gaunt. The guy is gaunt because the right. the jungle has eaten his flesh out in a way that he is so thin and gaunt. This is a whole other thing. This is excess. This is gluttony. This is almost uh, conveys a sense of like just giving up and just like enjoying the excesses of this godlike figure at the end of the path or at the end of the journey that uh, that Willard is going on, right? And that's, in a way, it kind of worked out. The bald head, everything, it's, he's very monk-like in that way. It, 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 we can't imagine it any other way. I can't, no. So it must have worked out. Right. And at this point, it's just Sam Bottoms and Chef yeah. uh, left on the boat. Frederick Forrest, yeah. Frederick Forrest. And we arrive and we meet Dennis Hopper. And Frederick Forrest, by the way, one of the greatest portrayals of one of the most manic characters ever. Emotion. Oh, yeah. This guy is, he is, you talk about wound too tight. 
so tight, so tight, which I love in Tropic Thunder when uh, Robert Downey Jr. is making fun of that when he's talking about being a saucier and crab apple. Right. That's his way of, ma- that's sure. the filmmaker's way of making fun of that scene in Apocalypse Now when chefs talk about that before the tiger jumps out. You know? yeah. But yes, I'm And sorry, this but... is great Coppola direction of like, like, okay, use it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he keeps coming up to Coppola and goes, Man, I don't know. I, I don't know what my character is. I don't know what I'm doing here. I just feel like I'm yeah. I'm back home. I'm on the street in Beverly Hills, and then I'm here, and I don't understand what's happening. And Coppola's response is, "That's your character." <laughs> and later on in the film, what do you have? You have this scene where he's going, "I'm not here. I'm walking through the jungle gathering mangoes. I meet Raquel Welch. You make a nice mango cream pudding." Coppola's attitude is, "Whatever you're going through." That's what you use. Yeah. You know, Martin Sheen repeatedly throughout from the beginning to the end of the film is saying, I don't know who this guy is. And Coppola finally is like, he's you. Yeah. I will put Lucas and Lucas. It's weird because he's a disciple of Coppola's yeah. in a lot of way. And he's the opposite. Right. So Coppola's feeling is that whatever is real is, is in the movie. So, so Brando shows up and he's fat. Well, that's what it is. Yeah. You know, even not... though he was frustrated about it. Oh, sure. He, he's like, well, I've got to work with it. Yeah. You know, I've got to work with it and make it work somehow. Yeah. So uh, Brando shows up, yeah. they're improvising, they're trying to figure out the ending, and the person who actually gives Coppola the key to the ending mm-hmm. is Dennis Hopper. So Dennis Hopper's on this Nutty film. Dennis Hopper. <laughs> yeah, so, so if you watch this film, Dennis Hopper's performance is so great mm-hmm. and so crazy, and what, what happened with Dennis Hopper, again, this is the improvisational aspect of the movie. Yeah. So Dennis Hopper, you know what he originally got cast for? Uh, no. He was originally cast to play the first Green Beret that had gotten sent uh, to kill Kurtz. Oh. Who we see very briefly. Scott Glenn. Who's Scott Glenn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is so Scott Glenn. By the way, there's some great, uh, I'm not going to get into him now. Mm-hmm. Go on the internet and look up Scott Glenn Apocalypse Now and you will see that he apparently was a hero yeah. throughout the making of the film. Like, rescued people during the typhoon, was like just this go-to guy. He's in, like, one shot in the movie. I, could, I didn't know Scott Glenn. Yeah. And looking at it, I'm staring at him. I still don't recognize him. <laughs> He's, so like He's so, so young. He's so young. that's who Dennis Hopper was hired to play. Uh, interesting. Dennis Hopper shows up, strung, strung out on drugs, mm-hmm. completely crazy. And Coppola goes, we can't, you can't play that part. Allegedly. 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 Yeah, I don't want to get a suit. Yeah, he's been dead a while. <laughs> That's true. Well, he's got an estate or something. Fairly well documented. Yeah, anyway, you know what? Ahead. It worked out okay for him. <laughs> yes, well, did. I don't know if it worked out okay for him personally, but, but in this film. And so Coppola, as he's struggling with the movie, he's carrying a, around a little green dog-eared copy of Heart of Darkness. Mm. So he's looking at the script and he's rereading the book. Yeah. And there's a character in Heart of Darkness called the Russian. And the Russian is this guy who's a disciple of Kurtz, and he's right. a Russian traitor in, in, in the book. And so he goes, oh, you're not the Green Beret. You're going to be the Russian. And then he, Hopper, invent this character, this crazy, wild, only Hopper could play this guy. And a lot yeah. of the dialogue is, is Hopper would improvise during the day. Coppola goes home and writes at night, yeah. brings back new pages, back and forth, back and forth. And it's this combo of improv of Hopper and Coppola yeah. that creates that character. I mean, what are they going to say, man, when he's gone, huh? Because he dies when it dies, man. When it dies, he dies. What are they going to say about him? What are they going to say? He was a kind man. He was a wise man. He had plans. He had wisdom. Bullshit, man. So while they're talking and Hopper's going off on one of his rants and improvising, he starts saying, well, this Kurtz is like a mythic figure. He's like a, he's like the king and the new king has to kill the old king and the land. And he starts naming all these mythological books <laughs> and Coppola's listening and going, 
that's the end of the movie. Wow. So the end of the movie, which is so simple, it's so obvious, yeah. you know, Willard, Martin Sheen's character, is sent to kill Kurtz. Well, that's the end of the movie, yeah. is that he kills Kurtz. And it's strange. It's always strange. I've had this experience lots of times where you spend a year trying to figure out how to end the thing or mm -hmm. what the story point is, mm -hmm. and it's literally the most obvious thing in the world, and you can't understand why you didn't get to it. Well, of course, you're too close to the material. Yeah. That's just how it is sometimes, yeah. Uh, so they go up, they get to this place where... Kurtz is, and now we've fully gone back in time. Yeah. There are people that are, you know, half naked, covered in white, mm -hmm. you know, ash or whatever that is. Yeah. And this beautiful, silent moment where the boat pulls in that's really terrifying. Yeah. And we're going off to meet the great man. And we, we meet Dennis Hopper, who is the disciple, you know, of the great man. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we talked about this in the podcast before of entrances and exits are really important oh yeah and we have built up kurtz now yeah like kurtz is gonna be big and right before we meet him uh martin Sheen gets knocked out and dragged away and tied up <sighs> and what great camera work yeah the camera to go, spins upside, to spin down. upside down and go with him because we have been watching this whole thing as if we're on the boat too so it's such a brilliant decision to make that because we feel the horror that sheen feels sheen is doing such a great job playing that part that sequence as an actor and we go with him in the horror yeah. because we're turned upside down and don't have any concept of what's going on well in that upside downness is you are powerless yes sheen you know like we, we, we you know this is not going to be a movie where the badass green beret you know pulls off the cool assassin right assassination right he's this is this is no you have no power here <laughs> you have no power but what kurtz gives you well once again it's america it's a it's a it's symbolic of america walking into a situation thinking just because they're americans and these are savages they can walk through them untouched right. and then it's it's not a, a bum rush it's a slow right. a, a, a consummation and it's fantastic yeah so the interesting thing about the Redux mm -hmm. is that in the Redux, there's two scenes in, in our normal one. Oh, yeah, one. yeah, yeah. So in the normal one, he gets tied up. He goes through some stuff. Uh, Kurtz has talked to him. Yeah. We met him. And then Chef's head is, Chef is killed. Yes. And his head is just dropped in Martin Sheen's lap. <laughs> so great, man. Which is brilliant. Yeah. And uh. then, and this scream, Martin Sheen's reaction to it. Because again. That's the first real emotion we see from him. Since the montage. Yes, since the montage. We, he's been like ice cold. Mm -hmm. And then this moment we go, oh, you, you see all that emotion. You mm -hmm. see that he has these feelings. And then in the Redux, we go to him being sort of put into the box. You yeah. Know, into the hot box. And you have these kids looking in through it. And then... Um, Brando sits down and reads excerpts from Time Magazine towards him. And again, the scene is beautifully yeah. shot. If you want to be a cinematographer, take a look at the scene. Yeah. It's gorgeous. And here's why it shouldn't be in the movie. Um, <laughs> Go ahead, yeah. Is that, is that in a movie, you only, you only need to do the same beat once. And you should do the one that's stronger. Right. Oh, you, can't, you can't go from, he had the head dropped in his lap, mm -hmm. to somebody's reading articles from a magazine to him. Mm hmm the head drop, we're done. Mm -hmm. If the point is to break down Martin Sheen, we've broken him down. Yep. You, the, 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 the Time Magazine one is lesser. Therefore, it unbreaks him yeah. emotionally. Is that once you've broken him, you've broken him. Move on. Yeah. Don't do even if even if you're. This will happen a lot, both in screenplay form and when you're editing. Yeah. You have two great moments, and they're both really good. Yeah. And they both essentially do the same thing with the character. Mm -hmm. You only get to have one of them. Take the uh, take the weak one out. Yeah. Even if it's good, and that's what's hard. Well, and I think what's great about that moment too, Steve, is that 
this is him finally confronting the horrors of his uh, deaths, the, the murders he's committed. That's right. Right. The, yeah. the, the, he's been able to commit the, what do you say? How many people have I killed long enough for them to, you know, to have their last breath on my ear? Like, because he's always been in control, killing right. it from a distance. And I don't mean distance f- physically. I mean, distance emotionally. And to have head, to have Forrest's or chef's head dropped into his lap is him confronting and being unable to move because he's tied up with his neck tied up and his hands and legs are tied up. So he cannot remove this head and the symbolism of that even though he shakes it out of his lap it is still the symbolism of the murder and that's why he breaks down and cries and all this kind of it's so great yeah so then we get brando and sheen and these monologues from brando it's impossible through words to describe what is necessary to those do not know what horror means. Horror. Horror has a face. And you must make a friend of horror. Horror and moral terror are your friends. If they are not then they are enemies to be feared. <laughs> What's your feeling here? Half, I mean, as an actor, brilliant, just brilliant, genius. As a lover of film, so well shot. The oh, in and the, out, oh, of, yeah. the light, out of the light, yeah. all of that. The sound, the foley of the dripping water of the towel echoing in this stone uh, structure all of it where sheen is at times he feels like he's got freedom and other times trapped like there's this engrossing right. thing that you're watching the madness of this man and it is the, and the genius power. and the genius right and the genius because of the things he's saying are logically correct and you can find logic in his thought patterns and his his largesse is so consuming that you are transfixed and, and, and this is really Brando. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of this is his improv. And a lot of this yeah. is the conversations he had with Coppola. Yeah. We went back there. And they had come and hacked off every inoculated arm. There they were in a pile. pile of little arms. And I remember... I, I, I cried, I wept like some grandmother. I wanted to tear my teeth out. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I want to remember it. I never want to forget it. I never want to forget. And then I realized, like I was shot, like I was shot with a diamond. A diamond bullet right through my forehead. And I thought, my God, the genius of that. The genius. 
That's a story Brando told Coppola right. when he put in the movie. But no evidence this has ever happened, by the way. No, but it's a good it's a good story to tell because that's the level of guerrilla warfare. That's the level that we're dealing with. These we don't have suicide bombers in America. Like we don't go off and go and like we don't have people who are going off and tying themselves to bombs to kill seventy people in our in Russia or something or in our, in a foreign land. We use our weapons. The guerrilla warfare, all they can use is because uh, yeah, we have our weapons. Right. All they can I mean, use is subterfuge and lies yeah. and. and and recruit people, and this is how they fight their war. And that's what he's talking about, the level to which these people are willing to go. We're too, we're too civilized to go to that level. Well, and, 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 and at while this I, moment. Well, I will say, uh, yeah, at this moment. Uh, you take away all of our power, you mm-hmm. take away all that stuff, who knows what we're going to do. We'll do it, yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is why I'll say, while, while there it seems to be no evidence that the immunization story happened, right. that the arms were cut off, uh, that doesn't mean there are not nine million other horrible things that did happen. Exactly. You know, the, and there are endless lists yeah. of of man's inhumanity to man yeah. that are insane. Especially in Vietnam. Yeah. I won't say especially. Okay. Because we could pick we could pick twenty other places. I we could pick right. the Holocaust and the Armenian oh, yeah, well, genocide. Of oh, yes, of course. You know course. what I mean? Like yeah, we could yeah, yeah. live all over in Cambodia sure. and all over and over and over again. Yeah. The 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 cultural revolution, like just on and on and on, mm-hmm. of people doing these insane things. Yeah. And part of what this movie is wrestling with is how do you get there? Mm-hmm. How does a human? And we have to go like if you're not a madman. An ordinary human get to the point where this makes sense, right. and that's what the journey of this movie is. This journey movie isn't a exploration of Vietnam, yeah. of that place. Mm-hmm. This movie is a journey into the madness within our souls and how easy it is to unlock that madness in a given circumstance. Yeah. And Kurtz's monologues, which come largely from Marlon Brando, is looking through the shadows of the light at that at the mm-hmm. face of that madness mm-hmm. and through looking through Martin Sheen's eyes yeah. who again is passive he sits silently and he even when we meet him is close to that madness yeah. and that has gone through this journey where he is as close to Kurtz as any human can be. Right. And only when you are so close when you truly know your enemy you almost are your enemy can you kill and you kill and he kills in a way out of love mm-hmm. i mean that's where this movie goes to now how you feel about that i don't know i disagree i don't think he kills out of love i i, I would disagree and you obviously you're absolutely valid to have that feeling and i've heard, heard that opinion a number of times i don't think he kills out of love i think he kills out of uh discovering how close he can come mm. to the madness sure. and actively deciding not to go into the madness because he doesn't. And this is the thing that I think is the fallacy about Willard. And it's totally been my belief in the beginning. He's a passive character because he has, he doesn't have the stones to be Kurtz. He doesn't have the balls to be Kurtz. He Mm. doesn't. Kurtz has the balls to be Kurtz. Willard wasn't the one doing airborne school at 38 years old. No, right. that's Kurtz. Willard wasn't the one. Oh, doing he's not these, Kurtz. He's not. Right. He's not nearly what. Kurtz and that's is. what I'm yeah, saying. I agree. Because he can he can conceive of the madness. He can experience the madness. He can visit the madness. He can't be the madness. And Kurtz is the madness. And no, that's the difference. Here's what I, where I disagree. Okay. Because I, I agree with everything you said. Yep. Except what I think he can't be is the genius. Yes. Okay. Sure. That's you know fair. what I mean. He the madness, the balls, and the genius. Like you need both. He yeah. has that. Is that Kurtz is a great man in yeah. the way that Willard is not. Right. Willard at his best could only be a disciple. Yes. He doesn't have the genius to figure out what Kurtz has figured out. Right. And to lead. No. No. Hundreds of people would swarm to Willard. Right. But Kurt, but Willard can see it from where he is. Right. He understands it. That's what I think is the mistake people make sometimes about the film is that. 
uh, Sheen is killing Kurtz to take his position. No. no, no, not in any way, shape, he can't or form. Take this position. Kurtz is asking him to kill him, and yes. that's what he says. Even the jungle wanted him dead. Well, that's what I mean out of love is yeah. that he's come to know him and understand him and know that what needs to happen now is for him his role mm-hmm. in his relationship to this person is to be his killer. I don't even know, and, and I and I get that right. And, but to me, I see it more as one military guy to another. There's an understanding, right. yeah. a brotherhood, and I think he does it out of brotherhood. Yes, you want to die. I will kill you. You are allowing me to kill you, and you will let me kill you because you. there's no way in God, God's green earth that I would be able to kill you no. if you didn't let me. Of course. And you're letting me kill you, which is why it, I love the juxtaposition of the animal that they're yeah. killing in the same way. Which, which uh, uh, one thing I'll add yeah, to that yeah, is, yeah. and it's right for me to kill you. Yes. It is, this is now the time for you to die. Yes. And I, and I am to be the instrument of your death. And I will take your story, which is what Kurt right. says to him. Yeah. Tell them. My story. Well, and there's a there's a not that I think this is a, a necessarily a, a Christ metaphor mm. so much because we're way out in yeah. a different area. But there is a Judas element of that that Christ can Judas is the great betrayer, but Christ can't be Christ without Judas. Right. Christ needs Judas. Judas must betray him, mm-hmm. and Christ tells him, "Yeah, go do what you have to do." Right. You know, and I think there's an element of that. Absolutely. Here. And this goes back to what Dennis Hopper said: is that Dennis Hopper was the one who saw, oh, this is a great myth. You are in the land of the great myth. And in every way, this is Joseph Campbell. We're on a hero's journey. Hopper's John the Baptist. Yeah. If you uh, want to, if you want to stretch is. out the analogy. He yeah. is. Yeah. He is. He's, does more drugs than John the Baptist, but maybe not more crazy. <laughs> but just as crazy. Just as crazy. Um, uh, the, you, you mentioned the killing of the water buffalo. Yeah. Which is a real animal they getting killed. Actually killed, yeah. There is no no animals were harmed. It's unsettling, man. It is really uh, uh, unsettling, and it's mm-hmm. actually part of a ritual of the native people in the Philippines, whose yeah. name I don't remember, and that Coppola's wife had gone out to one of these rituals, and she said, you got to see this. Yeah. And he brought them down, and they're really doing their ritual, wow. their ritual sacrifice. They had already killed chickens and a right. goat, and now they're doing the big one, which they do annually. <laughs> and that is the real ceremony. The look in the eyes of the water buffalo when the sword goes through or the machete goes through is uh, is uh, one of the most harrowing things in the whole film for yeah. me. Oh yeah, it's it's conceiving of its death. Yeah, it's, wow, it's and how insane. you feel about this is it you know how one who might be an animal lover would feel about this. Yeah, there's some complicated feelings there. Absolutely, because again, it's like the movie where it's well, we're killing animals all the time to eat them. Yeah, we just don't see it. Right, and here the movie is making you look at it. Yeah, and feel something. Well, not just the animals. Us, of course, killing each other. Well, that is what the you know. Yeah. And again, this goes back to how Vietnam is portrayed. Vietnam's the first TV yeah. war mm-hmm. where you're really seeing it. Yeah. And since then, they've changed the rules. You don't get to see certain things right. in the wars today. Yeah. Uh, for instance, bodies coming home. That used to you would always they would always film the bodies yeah. coming home. That's against the rules now. Right. And the reason is is because our government doesn't want us well, to see those things. It's also a violation of the privacy of these families sure. seeing their dead ones plastered all over television right but then you have those moments like abu Ghraib. you have these moments like what happened with right. those soldiers and prisoners and li- lining them up like or laying them on top of each other naked these terrible things that they do because that's what i'm and listen you want to get mad at me get mad at me if you're listening to this but i've been in the military for eight years i know what the f i'm talking about sometimes they take these people who are not that intelligent and they put them in charge of these situations they put them as guards in these situations because they don't want to have intelligent people who are going to question what they're going to ask these guards to do and the inhumane things they're asking these guards to do to these prisoners there are intelligent people that will fight back that is what uh, Kurtz is in the movie Kurtz is too intelligent to to accept war as it's been portrayed and the madness of it just accept it he questions it he punctures a hole in the 
the idea of it, in the logic of it, in the theology of it, because he sees the cosmic joke of it, you know, and that's the thing that I but, think is, po- that's my opinion. That's my I, point of view. Well, and, and I think what this movie points to and what you say with Abu Ghraib is that is the madness. Yes. You know, th- that is another right. example. Yes. Of this is where it goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the famous Stanford prison experiment. Yes. The Stanford prison experiment, for those who don't know, it's fascinating. There's documentaries about it. But- there's a film on it with Billy Crudup, which I watched the other night. Oh, how is it? Yeah, it's okay. They're a little too weird about it. But other than that, it's it, it, you certainly should watch it. So basically, this is the experiment is in the I think it's early 70s. This guy said, we're going to set up a situation and we're going to just have we have volunteers and they're just students from Stanford and some of you are going to be the prisoners and some of you are going to be the guards and we're going to just run a fake prison and see what happens and within days and they do this you know Mm -hmm. regularly within days the guards are abusive to a degree where it is physical abuse and it's you know the things you see later in Abu Ghraib is all comes in the Stanford and these are just it's all fake and yet the the, the, I'm an authority over you immediately you fall into these roles of abuse we're animals yeah what do you expect? Well, like, and, that's the thing. And what Kurtz does is, yeah. is, is that he sees the fallacy, he sees the madness, mm-hmm. and rather than going, I will not participate in this, right. this is mad, he goes the other way. Yeah. He goes, it's mad, let's go in. And so when we arrive at his compound, there are half-naked bodies hanging mm-hmm. around, there are the heads, yeah. and the heads, by the way, so there are all these heads in the ground, <laughs> and what those actually are, are people Filipino people who are buried up to their necks who sat there all day. What? Yes. This is like, you know, like how could you possibly do this? This It's terrible. Like literally buried alive to their heads and they had, they put little umbrellas over them when they weren't shooting to protect them from the, because it's a hundred degrees and they sat there all day in the dirt day after day after day. What? That's cheap labor. That is cheap labor. Holy crap. And Copeland should be taken up to, you should be convicted for this. Yeah. It's horrible. That is horrible. And this is what you say. Coppola is Kurtz. Yeah. Is he goes, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do. It's the madness of his, it, the genius it, of his madness. Yeah, yeah. it is mad. And in the end, you know, he's leading uh, Lance by the hand, which is such an awesome moment that he's leading Lance by the hand yeah. out of them back onto the boat and leaving. And you go to the stone idol, this whole idea. And because Lance, everything is an experience to Lance. You can't kill Lance. You can't hurt Lance because Lance is not an active participant, even less no. passive, even more passive than Sheen. Yeah, it's all experienced. Well, he's just drifting. Yes, he's drifting. Exactly, he's drifting. And, and honestly, he would have become part of that tribe. Yeah, you know, he would have just gone up. Yes, the absolutely. And that's that's the end. Of, if she had decided to stay, he would have stayed. Yeah. And, be and, part the, of the, tribe. and the, the the final shot, which is as you mentioned, is that there's this stone idol that's sort of superimposed with uh, Sheen's face. Yeah, and this is something we saw in the opening montage. Yeah, what do you think that means? <sighs> I just think it's what you talked about earlier, the idea of going back to our primal nature. This is what the jungle is. The jungle is the jungle of our souls, the jungle, the, this, the lie we tell ourselves that we do not have a jungle. You know what I'm saying? We're all capable of it. And I think Sheen is that is going back into the jungle of his own mind, his own soul, where all these things are hidden and they pop out and they can really kill you and unsettle you and test you and push you to your extreme limits. And I think that's what it is. And this idea of the stone idol there, it's a symbolism of, of, of uh, creating a, uh, an homage to the gods of that, an homage to the gods of war, an homage to the gods of religion, whatever you, whatever you believe, right? Yeah. And I think that's yeah. what it is, that we create those uh, homages in our own, or we create those stone idols in our own jungles, in our own bodies, in our own souls. And that's what I've always seen it as. Yeah. Yeah. Coppola said a thing. He said, 
that movies so movies aren't like novels where you tell this is the story. Yeah. He said that movies need to be like poetry where we always want to speak indirectly. Yeah. If we just tell you what to think, you don't walk away with anything. Mm-hmm. You go, okay, now I know what to think. Right. Instead, we want to create a question. He said that he said that when you go into a movie, you go in it because you want to answer a question. Yeah. And then the exploration of making the movie is trying to answer that question. And that moment to me is a question. Okay. You know, it is a it is something about that the jungle is as you said, it's in us. Mm-hmm. And that the here's this this giant statue, which is in a way deep, deep from our past, but also our sign of civilization. Mm -hmm. And that it's almost as if to, this is how I feel. It's almost as if to me, it's saying this veneer of civilization is so thin and within us is still this savage is Mm -hmm. still this madness is still this killer. And that we, no matter what bullshit you say about yourself, you cannot escape that reality. Yeah. And this movie, because there's almost a sense where the 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 way they do it in the montage too, where that the statue is a mirror, mm-hmm. even though we look at them superimposed, yeah. it's almost as if they're looking into each other. Yeah, and that this is telling us to look into yourself, that this is in you. Yeah, and any in that you, and that if you don't believe it, it's in you. Then Kurtz would tell you you're lying to yourself. Yeah, uh, let's talk about the score. Yeah. Oh, what what an essential part of the movie in so many ways because of the loud beats, the loud moments, and then the quiet undercurrent of dread and uh, yeah. terror that's going on through the whole film. So the composer is Carmine Coppola, it's yeah. Francis Ford Coppola's dad, yeah. and who's a you know brilliant, classically trained mm-hmm. uh, musician. He's a flautist, yeah. and um, the way they did it's really interesting. So I guess Coppola had heard, I can't remember the name, yeah. Japanese composer that he really loved that was very modern, and couldn't get him, for, he wanted him for Apocalypse Now, yeah. couldn't get him for whatever reason. And so he goes to his dad and says, Dad, can you compose this kind of thing? And dad goes, that's not really... It's not, not really what I <laughs> I'm do. I'm a flautist. <laughs> um, and and they, they, they convinced him to do it. And what they did was he composed it for traditional instruments, for strings mm-hmm. and a traditional orchestra. And then they transposed it essentially for synthesizer. And oh, this is the early days yeah, of synth. So synth, yeah. synthesizers, electronic music starts in the late 60s. Right. And we're still pretty early days. Today, a synthesizer can play everything. Yeah. Uh, it's remarkable. But at the time, it's pretty limited. And so you get this completely... Apocalypse Now is a totally unique sound Mm -hmm. because it's this sort of classical approach translated to synthesizer. Mm -hmm. still get actually Carmine playing the flute mm-hmm. uh, in it and it's just beautiful and haunting yeah this is one of the rare uh, score soundtracks that I own oh yeah and that I actively listen to on my iPhone or iPod because they juxt they have uh, sequences of the dialogue and then they have the score and the score is so haunting and it's a double CD it's a double CD oh wow it's a lot of so it's heavy because of course like you said the film is told in acts it's a long film yeah. so therefore you're experiencing the film over again as you listen to these uh, tracks on the score and they're so fantastic and unsettling man well and one of the things and I think this is true in a lot of ways of movies is that great movies don't feel dated mm-hmm. 
And scores, particularly synthesizer score, if you hear synthesizer score for the Terminator, right, or or John Carpenter's score, Blade Runner, yeah, you go like, oh, early eighties, right, I got it. you know, it nails it right there. Chariots of Fire, yeah. yeah. You listen to this synthesizer score, it is not, yeah, it it is just this is the score for Apocalypse Now, yeah. It doesn't feel dated in any way, nope. And, and it's quite powerful and moving. Mm-hmm. It has it has tremendous dissonance. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's an amazing score. Um, so final thoughts. Well. I want to talk about one more thing, because with you, we haven't talked about your feeling about Kurtz. What is your feeling about this character, about what he like, what he went through? Like, what is your feeling about this guy? What is he supposed to symbolize to you in your mind? Like, what is it about this? Because you asked me what I thought about Brando's monologues, but, I, but I, we didn't get to hear what you thought about all those things. Um, I think he's... A perfect example of genius and strength and ri- will mm-hmm. run amok. Okay, you know the the and, and it's the. Do you buy Brando's performance? I do. I, I like his performance. It's funny. I was watching it with my wife. Yeah. She does not. Mm. And, 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 there and she's a moments, casting wife. She's a casting director. Yeah, there are moments where I think he's it's too much. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, it's it's just one of those things. It's not that I'm, I like Brandon. No, no, I'm not judging. Yeah. Please, this um, is great. But you asked me who Kurtz about Kurtz. Yes, about Kurtz. Brando. Well, he's portraying Kurtz, but yes. So, but this is the so this is the thing, and it comes to me teaching film school, and it right. comes to a lot about what I think it is to be a responsible person in the world, right? And I don't think Brando showing up having not read Heart of Darkness is a responsible person in the world. And I don't think improvising the end of your movie and just having a whole crew sitting around wasting their time is responsible. I don't think Coppola showing up to make this film, which I adore, and making it in this manner, I think it's abusive and dangerous. Mm -hmm. And I think that Kurtz is a perfect example of this. Is that, yeah, you're brilliant. Yeah, you're more brilliant than me. You're stronger than me. Yeah. You have greater will than me, greater charisma than we. And what are you doing with that? Yeah. Is that when the ego gets so big, it leads to this level of excess mm-hmm. where people don't care about the hurt they do to other people. Yeah. So you ask me how I feel about Kurtz. Kurtz offends me. Mm. I, wow, he, that's powerful. He, well, how can you not be offended? They're heads all over this place. There's naked bodies hanging from rafters. He cuts heads off people. Yeah. He, he, he's a murderer. He's a mass murderer. Yeah. And he's used his megalomaniacal charisma yeah. to bring everybody else into his evil. And like, yes, do I believe that humans have this madness? Obviously, I've looked at the world. Yeah. Do I believe people are capable of the things that are Kurtz are capable of? Yes. Does that mean I should admire Joseph Mengele or admire Paul Pot? No, of course no. not. No. Yeah. So, so like, I, I, what I look at it is this is a cautionary tale. Right. Like, this movie is about this is in us. Right. But this movie to me is also about don't be that. Yeah. This is what I want to ask you the question for because do you – think his logic because you're a very logical person Stephen. that's why i'm asking you do you think his logic is convenient of course do you buy his logic for doing because he basically kills now without any boundaries and even boundaries from himself like there's no judgment from the world around him anymore because he's hidden himself off into these into this uh area and he goes on his own missions he recruits his own people to complete these missions because he has his own his own war that he's fighting Right, uh, it's whatever like, whatever that war whatever is. that war is. Right, exactly in his mind, you know, and he may be correct, but we don't know because of his genius and, and, and his madness. And so this whole thing of like that, that great famous line.
line, you know, uh, it's like handing out speeding tickets at the Indianapolis 500, right? right. Uh, convicting someone of murder is like handing out this, like, all these things. And then when he says he's an errand boy sent by grossly Kirks to collect a bill, like there's a destruction of this whole idea of the military, the destruction of the whole idea of war, right? But is his logic convenient because he went insane? Is his logic convenient because he dis- he saw the fallacy of it and instead of playing part of it and quitting, which is what a person would do, which is, you know what? I'm going to dishonorably discharge me. I can't do this anymore. Put me in a desk job, whatever. He decided to go insane and create his own fiefdom. And there's an arrogance in that. And I just why I want to ask you about Well, you what, answered your own question. Did I? Well, I was wondering if you felt the same. I mean, no, it's absolutely. I okay. I'll, I'll give you an example. For sure, sure, sure. So I'm a very good arguer. Like I have, I have skills. I would agree with that. I have skills. <laughs> and I would say that I'm a better arguer than my wife. And in terms of okay. in terms of being able to like lay out a logical pattern and 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 articulate it well, yeah. I, I'm I'm not generally a person that you want to really if I'm really going to argue mm-hmm. with you. So she we're, and I are having we're an driven by logic as men. Sure, yes, go ahead. Sure, I won't put that as men in because <laughs> again we'll like look at Kurt. Fine, I'll take the hit. Um, yes, but but um, but I'm having an argument with my wife. Yes, I have set up a perfect logic trap. Yeah, I'm leading her into it. I'm about to drop the hammer oh, and prove her. you do that. Sometimes. You ask the questions to lead her into this oh, tunnel. Sh- at this oh, moment, I'm a terrible t- person. <laughs> well, I think that's well established. And just as I'm about to really horribly destroy her argument, yeah. I realize she's right. Oh. And this is the key. Realizing she's right and being able to. And so I stop. Yes. Is that you're, it's just like you put a 300-pound a football player in the ring against a a 17-year-old kid, yeah. and you say fight, that doesn't mean the 300-pound football player is right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it doesn't even mean he's better at martial arts or he's mm-hmm. a better fighter. It mm-hmm. means he's 300 pounds. Right. So the fact that you have more intellectual power to bring to bear to your argument yeah. does not make your argument right. Right. Well, that's a good point. It, it might feel that it does. Yes, of course. And the thing that you must constantly do, you know what cognitive dissonance is. Cognitive dissonance is our... Um, desire to reform the world so that we come out right. Yes. And this is something that is with us at all times. Mm-hmm. And so what I think you have to do, if you're truly a brilliant man, if you're truly Kurtz, well then what you first have to do is take that bright light of logic and power and shine it on yourself. Yeah. And shine it on your own motivations and your own arrogance and your own fears and go, I'm, oh, I've created a logic where it makes sense for me to do this thing. Yeah. But in fact, the reason that I'm doing this thing is because of my rage, my fear, my anger. Yeah my desires and all of my my gluttony mm-hmm. my lusts and go oh my logic doesn't matter what i'm doing is evil yeah you know the if i discover that the war is madness then i must fight against the war that is what the logic says to do right the I logic must, doesn't say therefore i must become more mad than yeah, the war i must go back home organize a protest machine yeah. or whatever and protest the war as vehemently as possible as vehemently as i served it and that is courage. That is courage. Exactly. That is courage in the way that what Kurtz is doing is not courage. No, it's hiding away. There's an expression, an Afghani expression, which is uh, herat, which is their sort of code of honor. Mm-hmm. And what they define in, in herat, and I'm not going to quote this exactly right, but their definition of courage, which I think about a lot, is doing what that which is hardest. Yes, of course. And so, and I think about this all the time. And and uh, the Afghani culture is a very macho, very masculine mm-hmm. culture. You don't admit to pain. You don't admit to fear. Right. You don't admit to injury. You don't admit to all these things. And I went, if you're all resisting admitting to those things, yeah. maybe that's what's hardest. Mm, interesting. Maybe, maybe, maybe admitting that you're afraid 
Yeah. That's actually what's hardest. How many men will not admit that they're in pain, yeah. will not admit that they're sick? I watched yeah. this with my dad when he was dying. Yeah. He would not say, he would not admit these things. And I'm like, and he, what was he afraid of? He was afraid of being human. Right. So therefore, admitting the humanity, the fear, the pain, the softness within yourself. Yeah. That's what's hardest. Yeah. That's what takes courage. Killing a person is not what takes courage. Right. Hiding out yeah. in a fiefdom is not what takes courage. Yeah. Right. Gandhi takes much more courage than the killer. Because Gandhi is saying, kill me. Yeah. I'm, I will die. Yeah. You know? I will fast for what I believe in right. to the point of death. So, you know, in my mind, Kurtz is a despicable, horrible person. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make him not a fascinating person. Yes, Or a dramatic person course, or a compelling person. For the film, yeah. But, no, he's evil. Yeah. And should be killed. There we go. I knew you had some thoughts. All right. Okay. So with that, do we have final thoughts or have we done them? Yeah, my final thought is see the film if you haven't seen the film. And if you haven't seen it in a while, if we've wet your appetite to see it again, watch it again and, and, and comment back to us, tweet back to us because we enjoy having interactions with you all very much. There's so much here to explore that I love exploring and revisiting. And if you're a lover of film, there's so much you can get out of it every, as I said at the beginning, every decade, every decade that you watch it, no matter what stage in your life you're in, there's something to get out of this film every single time. And so that's, I think it's, I think you, you might have convinced me there might be Coppola's best film ever made, possibly. I, yeah, I don't know. He's got, he's Godfather got... 2, it, it would rival it though, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get to those in some future episodes. <laughs> sure we will. So, so uh, I want to go back to what I said at the beginning, which mm -hmm. is that we have the making of the film and we have the film and the meaning of the film. Yeah. And in this case, they're both equally interesting. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, as you as a filmmaker, as someone who wants to analyze and understand film, study this as mm -hmm. the making of a film. Yeah. And then you also have to experience this as the emotion of what is this poetry about? What does this mean? What does this mean to me? And how does this make me feel? How does this make me look at the world? Yeah. Uh, and we'd like to hear those thoughts. So please, as always, we want to hear your comments on Twitter. Uh, you can reach me at SR Morris. John, where can you reach you? Uh, you can reach me at The Roca Says, R-O-C-H-A-S-A-Y-S. And uh, you can also visit our Facebook page. It's The Cinephiles. And for those of you, again, it's C-I-N-E dash F-I-L-E-S. Right. So look for The Cinephiles on Facebook. Uh, and as always, it's really important. Please leave your reviews on iTunes. We had a bunch going there for a while, and now they've fallen off. Oh, no. And that makes me sad. Yeah. So, and you don't want me sad because you <laughs> might, I might just end up off of the jungle. No, and then I'll have to take everybody with us on the journey to go find you. And, yeah. and kill me in the end. <laughs> no, no. This is what's at stake with you leaving <laughs> reviews on iTunes. So Maybe. please reviews, uh, leave, leave your reviews there. And thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on The Cinephiles. Thank you.